everybody, and welcome to Volume 2, Issue 93 of the Kane and Rinse podcast. After a four-year absence following 2003's spy fiction on the PS2, director Hidetaka Suehiro unveiled Rainy Woods at Tokyo Game Show 2007. This heavily Twin Peaks-inspired psychological thriller-slash-survival horror finally emerged in 2010 under the name Deadly Premonition, or Red Seed's profile in its native Japan, to a wildly mixed reception. Welcome to Greenvale, where the townsfolk are literally bending over backwards to greet you. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, Tony Atkins. Hello. Darren Foreman. Afki in the coffee, baby. Carl Moon. Hey, guys. And a new challenger appears, special guest from GameAndNote.com, Eddie Inzotto. Hey, what's up? Yeah. Uh, he does sound quite a lot like a regular Canaries panellist, Sean O'Brien, especially to our untrained English ears, or British ears, I should say. Sorry, Darren. Um, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference between Sean, oh, well, one of many, I'm sure, between Sean and Eddie is that Eddie has completed Deadly Premonition. Good stuff. So, in fact, we start off uh, Kane and Rince by generally explain, explaining um, how, at what point in our lives we came across Deadly Premonition, or the, the game in question, uh, and whether we got on with it straight away, were we hyped for it, had we got it pre-ordered. Um, so, Eddie, did you, were you, uh, did you play this back in the day in 2010, or is it a more recent thing? Well, it was interesting. I did, uh, I did start it back in 2010 early before all of the internet hype and I got into it a little bit and I played I don't know maybe quarter to a third of the way and I just kind of put it down uh, for other things that I had Mm. to do and then I didn't finally get back into it and finish it until the director's cut uh, recently that's interesting because I think anecdotally at least um, people will either get turned off very quickly by the problems that this game undoubtedly has that we will talk about at length um but to get that far into it normally i think in based on what i've read and heard and people have said to me normally by that point you're kind of sucked into the to the to the game world and the story but that obviously it wasn't quite compelling enough to you on on first at first hand first attempt well uh, maybe perhaps i didn't get as far into it as i as i think i did i, I just remember that the travel a lot of that driving <laughs> turned me off in the beginning. I was very impatient at the time. Yeah. Maybe I had a, a lot of other things to do, and it just was not the right time. That that happens a lot with certain games. So Absolutely. Certainly yeah. one that it could happen with. Definitely. And Darren, what about you? I'd never heard about this before it came, uh, Before the reviewers got their hands on it. Like, IGN gave it, I think it was a 3.0 out of 10. And, uh, two, I think, wasn't it? Somebody it gave could, it a it two. It could have been a two. It was very yeah. low anyway. Mm. And then Destructoid came in the other side and gave it a 10. So obviously it's quite a polarizing game, yeah. And at that point, I started to hear a lot of uh, positive fan feedback towards it. So I checked out some of the early game stuff, um, just kind of trying to get a feel for it. And yeah, I mean, it certainly kind of caught my interest, you know, like that uh, part at the start with 
uh, Mark basically multitasking everything known to man while driving. And, yeah, I mean, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect of it, but um, I'd heard so many good things that I was kind of forewarned about all the really kind of obvious problems that the game has. And in the most part, I was able to overlook them after a short while, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you played it <coughs> near release, and uh, have you ever been back to it since, or, or tried the director's cut? Well, I did want to play the director's cut until I heard that the the technical performance of it was terrible, and that the extra storyline aspects only undermined the main story. Mm, yeah, we'll talk uh, about that later. Yeah, I mean, I haven't actually played it, but um, I did intend to play it again, but I loaned my copy out a while back, and I've never seen it since. So... I think that's fair. Share the love. Yeah, I mean, the fact I never got it back kind of probably lends the credence towards it being uh, enjoyed by the other party. Or they just sold it. Yeah, the <laughs> bastards. Uh, Carl, what about you? It's, I didn't really hear a whole lot of the game uh, prior to its release, um, other than it was the new, quote-unquote, sort of survival horror, horror-based mystery game, and... I'm a huge fan of that genre of game, and I was listening to it at the time it was the uh, Super Happy Fun Time show, and every week they would they would cover the you know the, the what they've been playing, and you'd have Chris on the show would constantly be saying I've been playing Deadly Premonition, hmm. and then he'd get harangued by the rest of the team. Why are you playing that? It's rubbish, and he'd be like, you know what? It's rubbish, but it's compelling, and uh, it seemed really strange that every week he was going back to it, and I think that sort of built my curiosity up to the point that when I looked at it, I saw that we had obviously a delayed release. Um, so I, I pre-ordered it and I got it uh, when it came out. Uh, unfortunately, the end of 2010 was quite a busy um, period of time for me. There were some great games um, and, and I was sort of held up with other games like Halo Reach and, and, and so forth. And then in 2011, I worked away. So I, I sort of started it towards the end of the year, finished the prologue. I was a, a little bit intrigued but then, you know, sort of time moved on. And I, I finished other stuff, and and thank, thankfully we'd sort of put it on the show, and it was always one that I wanted to play. So I, I finished it finally for the full time heading into the show. Oh, interesting. Okay, another different perspective. Um, yeah, I, again, I wasn't that highly aware of it um, back in 2010. I tend to keep an eye on what Rising Star games bring out because they uh, handle a lot of interesting Japanese stuff that wouldn't get released over here otherwise, like cave shoot-em-ups and uh, Arc System Works fighting games and things like that. Um, and obviously uh, the the fact that it was receiving such polarising reviews, I think, although it's kind of absurd thing, uh, the Guinness uh, Book of Video Game Records has acknowledged it as the most polarising survival horror video game. <laughs> it's like it's a fairly specific sort of award, but but there you have it. Um, and I eventually uh, I borrowed it off the ever generous uh, Ben Ford of the Same Coin podcast um, and uh, played it through on easy, um, having already heard things about the mechanics and how it was much more about the the story and the sort of interacting with the game world rather than, say, the shooting and the driving. Um, yeah, and uh, mixed feelings about a lot of it, um, but... I certainly came away with this sort of overwhelming desire to tell other people to play it, even despite my misgivings about certain aspects, which which I think is probably, uh, you know, is similar to a lot of people's uh, experiences. It's particularly the the word that I always use to describe it is memorable. And, um, and that, that might sound a bit like weak, but I don't mean it that way because, you know, I play like most of us do a crazy amount of video games and, and a lot of them aren't that memorable. Um, but, Deadly Premonition really is. Um, 
earlier this year I got a, a review code for the director's cut version uh, only had time to really just check it out um, indeed to see that the frame rate was inferior and things like that didn't have time to explore the extra stuff that's been added fully um, been back to it just today for several hours um, within the first two hours uh, I I did the thing you there's you can run through a door to speed up your the, the really really slow door opening animation um, the All second time <laughs> yep yep that's it the second time I did this I fell through the world at the bottom of the police station into a white void um, and was reset back to the hospital because it decided that I'd died you did yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah so that rather than save me three seconds it actually cost me about five minutes as I had to drive back across Greenvale to get back to the police station to carry on my investigations uh, actually I say investigations I was looking for a key with a particular kind of squirrel on it um, but there you go so uh, yes I've but I played it and completed it on 360 um, and Tony Atkins well, one of those people that you were telling that you really should play it was me. It was, yeah. Um, similar to Darren, really. I I had so much hype about this game and come into it very late. Uh, I've literally been playing it the last three weeks and pretty much non-stop in the free time I had to do so. Um, and it was... I mean, I was always of the belief that this was... A, you know, it was a good game because it was so terrible and it was fun to laugh at. Um, that's why you should play it. And actually, you said, forget that. You know that's not the reason why you should play this game. There's actually a really decent and interesting storyline that runs be- below that, and actually there's some you know some cracking stuff that you really should see firsthand. It's not just a, it's so bad, it's funny, it's good. Um, so I took your word upon <laughs> took your well, I, I decided that that was some Eventually, kind of truth. I think yeah. you da- I think you were sceptical in some ways. Well, you know it's it's not a short game, uh, or I suppose you can make it longer. I mean, I think you, you you certainly did in the end. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of it it kind of got its hooks into me and I just I'd, I'd like to be in that world so I, I ended up my total play time ended up being 42 hours um, which is a rather wow. long time to spend in this game but yeah so so it was a game that you know I'd clearly you know there's been a lot of talk about it and one of the I suppose one of the good things about coming to a game like this now is that you know, you've heard the debates across multiple uh, sources and you know to, to start the game on easy although on the director's cut that's actually not an option it just starts the game yeah um and you know that you should be looking for certain items uh, going into the game so from you know going for the walkie talkie uh, which lets you fast travel so you can minimize the driving as much as possible where i'd imagine a lot of people walk straight into that first time around and just did a lot of driving which i yeah i'd feel sorry for for those people so you know i had a lot of, a lot of knowledge going into this and maybe that's one of the reasons i i, I enjoyed it more than uh, some of us back on release but yes so I'm interested to talk uh, about uh, Hidetaka Swahiro, or Swery, as we shall call him from now on, because that's what he likes and it's easier. Um, so people sort of have him down now as this auteur games designer, but I do wonder how many games that he's been involved in people have actually played. <laughs> so I was looking at his softography. Um, he, he was a scenario writer on two fantastic SNK Neo Geo fighting games, The Last Blade and The Last Blade 2, which is s- simply excellent. Um, but he wasn't like involved in the mechanics of those games or anything. Um, he was a designer on Tumba or Tumbi Two: The Evil Swine Return. Now that means that he worked with the legendary Toko Fujiwara, who um, is uh, you know well known. He was a Capcom designer and, and Konami worked on Ghosts and Goblins, and Mega Man, and 
all sorts of absolutely amazing 80s and 90s coin ops and things like that um so uh maybe a bit of his talent and skill rubbed off on our swery uh other fact about swery apparently he owns a cat or did own a cat named <laughs> hr giggle um which is excellent um but i'm interested did anyone play uh spy fiction um, on the PlayStation 2 because that was his previous game before um, Deadly Premonition and I understand um, kind of the one that actually you know sort of marked him out as as, as, as a director writer to watch silence mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's the kind of game that I don't even know if it came out, came out over here I believe yeah it di- it did in 2004 yeah I mean that's the thing I mean even if it came out I mean it would have been really low profile and I just never yeah. heard it Mm-hmm. Eddie, no, no spy fiction no. for you. I, I, I understood it was like a slightly bigger deal in America than it was over here, but um, not big enough, obviously. What's the core of the game? I don't know. I've never played it. It was always one of those games where if I went to sort of my local, because we we've got quite a few indies uh, retailers for games in this area, or, or did have around two thousand and four, um, and you'd always see sort of the one or two copies just sort of sat there, all sorts of lonely, and obviously in two thousand and four we were. You know, starting to build up coming into this generation, and and you know the the PS2 sales were sort of the the, the stock was sort of dwindling, and they were keeping the more sort of iconic big titles around. And I, it was always one of those that was just a little bit too expensive for my tastes to take a gamble on. Um, and it looked and, and it looked like a it looked like a low budget straight to DVD kind of game, didn't it? It did, yeah. Up from the from the box, yeah. Which I was going to say the box art. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, typically uh, the European box art was. I don't know if it was any different. Normally, you 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 poor Americans get the worst of all the box arts, but um, I don't know if in this case we we got something else. But yeah, um, it's probably one that would warrant doing <laughs> doing a cane and rinse on at some uh, stage. That's every bit of a PS2 game cover. Interesting, uh, yeah, definitely interesting. Though it has uh, it has a character in it called uh, Forrest Kaysen, who looks like Forrest Kaysen, and is Forrest Kaysen. So there is there is a, a, a sort of a continuity. Um, between the mm-hmm. two since Deadly Premonition though he's worked on Ace Combat Joint Assault on the PSP as well as Lord of Arcana and Lord of Apocalypse none of which I've played all, all Japan only I guess none of us have dabbled with those either and now he's working on D4 um, and uh, the D series is another series that I have virtually no experience of and Tony you were saying before we started recording that that's looking like a connect uh, an, uh, yeah, an I was just, uh, just reading Edge um over dinner and just had a, I had a bit on D4 and just in there they were saying it was a uh, connect gesture based game so well he, he, he yeah he might do something interesting with it um, and you know the new connect may be somewhat better than I, th- the old I think that's the key isn't it is that you can't compare what we haven't experienced we know it's a higher you know resolution sensor so even though games like Haunt and uh, Steel Battalion Steel Battalion were particularly poorly received for their for their gesture recognition we know that the gesture recognition is so much higher that perhaps there could be something really interesting in the works I was just about to say that I really appreciate Carl's optimism <laughs> <laughs> I'm always optimistic I just, about stuff I just think it's a perfect fit for him you know if, I, if yeah. anybody's going to tackle a Kinect game then why not let it be Suri <laughs> So his co-writer on the game, Kenji Goda, is um, mainly known for his uh, film work. Um, 
uh, a quote I found. He directed and wrote a film. I think it's called Anal Life, and there's a, I think there's a poster for it in in the game. Uh, he directed and wrote a film where people go to a proctologist's office and see aliens and sing about bears. Yes. Okay. Uh, it's on Netflix. No, I'm not sure. I doubt it is. <laughs> Sounds the usual sort of thing. So the Rainy Woods uh, video, which I, I had a look at today for the first time, uh, not to be confused with Risky Woods, the Spanish-developed EA uh, Amiga Mega Drive platformer from the 90s. Um, so Rainy Woods was the prototype, uh, Deadly Premonition, with a slightly, well, a different named and a different looking main character. Um, but a lot of the elements were already there, weren't they? I mean, but it just looked even more like Twin Peaks, which is obviously the big influence on Deadly Premonition. Tony, you sent me the link. You you must have watched it. Yeah, it's it's odd seeing the main York not as that character, um, but it looks it, a hell of a lot more bland as well. Well, I mean, it, if if you look kind of like a side by side comparison of what Twin Peaks is, it's it's very much the Twin Peaks game. You know, if, if they just put Twin Peaks game on there, I don't think anybody would have uh, really complained. But by the sounds of it, there was enough. Um, complaints in there from somebody to say actually that's a bit too close because I can't. I, it's been a while since I've seen Twin Peaks, but you got the dwarf character who's there. Um, there was too. I think I just believe there was too many elements that that. I, I mean, not parodies. I guess what's the word? Um, well, it just it looked too much like Twin Peaks. Homage, yeah. Um, but really, I, watching that trailer, there's a lot of stuff that's still there within the game. So Definitely, I think, yeah. I think they just, you know, they they tweaked it, they changed it, and a year later, they they resubmitted it, and clearly the right people said yes. So yeah, that's more mm. of an homage rather than just a complete rip off. The game eventually came out in uh, first in the USA, interestingly ahead of its Japanese release by a month in February 2010. Ignition released it there in Japan. Uh, where it's called Red Seeds Profile, as we say. Marvelous released it in March, and that it had a PS3 version as well in Japan, uh, but nowhere else. And as I say, Rising Star brought it to Europe in October. It's one of those games which is a, a rarity these days, harking back to the bad old days where we used to have to wait sometimes up, you know, six months, a year or more. Uh, we had to wait all that, most of a year to get the game. And obviously the director's cut just came out this April and May. Now, uh, I definitely want to issue a spoiler warning for this Mm -hmm. game because it is a game that can most definitely be spoiled. Um, Yeah, it's I mean, it's effectively it's it's a surreal whodunit, isn't it? So, um, I mean, to be honest, the game kind of tells you whodunit at the very start if you're paying attention. (laughs) In fact, it's several times over and over again. But there's there are twists and turns that you probably wouldn't ever imagine that are about to happen. So um, no doubt we'll we'll spoil some of those. But let's start with those aesthetics because they will be a stumbling block for many. Um, what were people's first impressions of the graphics and sound? Yeah, pretty ugly. Just uh, dated. Like, oh, this is not from this generation. Yeah, low polygons, um, sort of clunky, very digital m- movement, poor animation. Or mediocre animation. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, a lot of people say this game is one of the worst games they've ever seen, and I, I think that's just yeah, it's a lot of people coming, you know, that haven't been playing games way, way, you know, way, way, way back. Mm. Um, like to me, it, from the very moment I, I put it in, it just felt like it was a PlayStation Two game, um, yeah. and I can see why some people, if you're playing on a current gen console, how that is a real turn off, certainly in a 3D environment, because uh, you know, quite often stylistically, games can get away with it if, when they, you know, they use different methods rather than just you know just 
kind of dated 3D polygons and stuff. But I always actually felt that the, the facial animations and stuff were actually pretty good. I've seen a lot worse in, in newer yeah. current generation games. I'm just saying they're not particularly technically proficient, but they get across emotion quite well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, like, you don't, you never really think that York looks real. Like, he's, there's always some sort of caricature or cartoonish look about his face. But, you know, you get what he's, what he's expressing. Yeah, the, the textures in the director's cut and presumably the forthcoming PC version um, do add a certain amount, I think, in, in, in making them look more realistic. But um, it is it is a little bit cartoony. I think the main thing that you notice is, about the overall look of the game is, is, apart from the lack of polygons, is the incredible lack of textures. Just like there are, compared to, compared to high-end games, the textures just repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And it makes, it makes places like Fields, the, the combination of low... You know, low polygon counts and and low and repeated textures makes them almost just really surreal. The, this sort of the the textures almost phase past you in this most bizarre fashion. It's kind of like playing an N sixty four game almost at points. Um, that's harsh, but uh, it does it does do some similar effects that were used from that generation. I mean, the, the, yeah. the very start, the opening setup when you're walking through the forest in the intro. Um, mm. you sort of see the grass bank on the side and it's essentially one grass texture yeah. and then another one which is identical sort of shifted sort of say two two pixels up two pixels to the side <laughs> yeah. and made semi-opaque and then another one on the top so you sort of see the same pattern three times overlaid mm. uh, slightly offset as if to you know give it some realistic depth but it, it actually just looks quite terrible and and it's, it's sort of the, the characters are much better than the environments in how they look but they're still very low poly I mean I remember I was reading the the sort of the technical spreadsheets on York himself, and uh, I think his, his character base was essentially twelve thousand polygons, which is absolutely nothing by today's standards. But then the actual boning of the face for animation is actually way higher than you would ever expect. I think mm-hmm. it was something like forty points of articulation, or tw- no, I think it was twenty nine points of articulation in the face, which. You know, it's not up there with what Nathan Drake could do in the Uncharted games, but it's far above what you would expect given the what the appearance from the rest of the game is, and it definitely comes over as. I mean, obviously, whilst there is sort of that self monologue talking to to Zach, we'll focus on later. There's, um, he, he does have the ability to convey and sell whatever he's thinking in that second just by viewing it. So they, fo- what you're saying is they focused their limited resources on the areas that needed it to to get this what what this game was about across I, I rather than worrying about fences you, and from the trees outset and... they knew that their most important asset in that whole game was was the main character he uh, you know the the writing of of him is is history the 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 split personality the the, the you know the, the city slicker in the small town and they needed a way to get all that across and by you know pooling those resources into his character and how he acts and how he animates was definitely the selling factor in the whole experience of the game for me. But to me, it's strange because, I mean, if you look at something like L.A. Noire, um, you know, fantastically designed city. Wow, brilliant. But when they actually just let you free roam that city, there's, you know, there's no quest. There's nothing really to do. You can go and find a load of collectibles and that's it. So it has no personality to it. There's a bit more once you're driving around in the emissions itself. But just like, oh, yeah, great looking city, I guess. But Greenvale, even though, um, you know, it's a, you know, a far drop down in quality compared to, you know, from a technical standpoint of view, um, I got to know my way around that that place because I was playing it for so long and I was doing multiple quests and I knew you know how to get to Harry's house by turning there. Although the map is the most atrocious map you're, you're likely <laughs> to play in any video game, so maybe yeah. it forced me to do that hand. But they they keep it simple. But it, it you know the the place of Greenvale, I I kind of grew to 
to like and respect. And strangely, it, it's actually pretty well mapped out to... Isn't it based in Washington? Um, the, the, you actually you look at the, um, the, the extras and the team actually had a, a trip over there. And they took a load of photos and stuff and actually modelled it on a few of the towns that they took. And you actually look at the, the comparison shots. They got it pretty spot on. Like the bridges are almost identical and the shops and the towns and um, the milk mart is actually a real place that they, it's, it's designed. Like all the models are pretty damn spot on. It's just that they look so flat. That it's interesting uh, coming from because we, we obviously we played Shenmue uh, at the end of last mm-hmm. year and early this year and it's uh, similarly you know trying to create an open open world city you know, real life type well more city like in Shenmue uh, oh no there is the small town at first but uh, but actually as much as I hated getting around in Shenmue because it was so slow and laboured and the controls were so bad you know Deadly Premonition is a lot better than that in ter- in terms of mechanics. Uh, despite its shortcomings, but actually Shenmue probably looked better, you know, well, even though it's a, yeah. from 1999, uh, which is quite something, really. Says a lot. I, for, I would assume it uh, also had a much higher budget than Deadly Premonition. Uh, yeah, one of the most expensive games yeah, exactly. ever made. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot more intimate areas as well. You know, there's been yeah. a lot of things to do in even the smallest corners. So yeah, now just just reading a bit further into the, the development of this game as well, you you can see. How they got so aside because coming off a PlayStation Two game into a you know a, a current generation game or a next gen game at that point they realised they had so much RAM and they built this huge place and then suddenly realised that they couldn't control how much leakage of RAM there was going everywhere hmm. and it's very much a technical point of view but they just had to keep on scaling back because what they had des- done they designed lots of other elements that that were inside Deadly Premonition such as. Um, people go in about their business on a you know a day to day route. You can follow them and watch them move around the town, yeah. Yeah. Um, and all these other little elements they they bedded into the game and didn't want to lose that. So they decided just to graphically tone it down so the rest of the game would run. Otherwise, they feel like the core of the game would have been spoiled just to make um, you know the city of Greenvale look a bit more better. And I I think that's probably the right decision in the end. But it's just a developer overstretching what they thought they could do and almost having the game cancelled three or four times, just realizing yeah. We, we've got to make sacrifices and that's one of them I think Greenvale comes off as quite you know quite intimate to the player as you're playing it you can learn to love it and, and enjoy being there and I think part of the experience is that if you compare it to any other open world game uh, like Grand Theft Auto or, or L.A. Noire for example maybe 2% of all the characters you interact with are characters with a personality and I don't mean just personality in that they're enjoyable or to be around but in that they actually are a named character that you can sort of interact with like in LNY you've got obviously your partners and then you've got the sergeant and then maybe a couple of shop owners that you never see again whereas in Deadly Premonition maybe 75% of that whole city are actual people that you will see again and again and again and the only people that are non-interactable are people that you sort of you might get two people in the supermarket that are browsing some yeah. products and, yeah. and, and there it. are quite a lot of people who uh, who York says I don't think that's th- this person's got anything to do with the, with, with the investigation but but yet he seems to certainly get through for such a small town he get when the, when the rains come and the gas kick you know the military experiment gas kicks up and they all turn into freaky monsters um, it's amazing he doesn't wipe out the entire population <laughs> during those points um, another area which was obviously affected by the budget not talking about the music here it was a separate conversation is the sound effects uh, which are pretty much uniformly abysmal 
Yeah, it's really <laughs> charming. Bad. Is the word you're yeah, Sorry, charming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, charming. Um, not only those speech samples, but also just things like the footsteps. It sounds again like previous gen stuff, doesn't it? You know that sort of sort of uniform, um, monotone, sort of unchanging, depending on the speed. I think when you're accelerating your car, you have sort of one level oh, of the acceleration, car. Oh, and then just Jesus. that horrible sort of. <laughs> <laughs> top note when you you know when you're absolutely maxing your car out at a huge 38 to 43 yeah, whiny miles an hour looped sample that's about three I seconds i find those on. those sounds to be so endearing though they mm-hmm. remind me of of the end of the cartridge era yeah you yeah just didn't have enough space for sound so that's what it sounded like yeah definitely um it what I'm, one thing that i'm going to keep coming back to with this um with this game and, I, and i'm interested in what all of you fellas feel about this is a lot of the things that de- problems that deadly prepension obviously has and we haven't even started talking about its good qualities yet and there are many um how if if rockstar put out a game with these production values regardless of how good the story and the writing and the characterization was would it would it get the same would it get cut the same slack it just for me it just wouldn't no it would be played by different people yeah that would be viewed with different eyes and different expectations. Mm-hmm. I think that that's is is that fair on on both? I mean, you know, should should maybe you know should should a game just because a game's got a bigger a name behind it, bigger bigger budget? If you know, it it seem it feels to me like these days, big budget games, high profile games with with marketing behind them and an advertising budget that are that tend you know ended end up being well greeted by by reviewers tend to be picked apart for the smallest things, whereas whereas the the underdog is praised to the high heavens, regardless of imp, you know huge flaws. But here, here's the crux of that. I mean, that's that's saying that you know both graphics and sound effects are uh, such a huge part of a game that they must be truly spectacular to to well a massive audience and I, I just don't i don't think that's true i just think you know yes it would be a surprise i don't think rockstar would ever would but if they did yes it obviously would be it's a hypothetical a surprise, situation but, um <laughs> it, it have it had you know deadly has other elements such as its story i'd argue that deadly premonition's story is far better than pretty much yeah, but that, that's most why of its content that have rockstar have put out so well the, what i'm saying yeah what i'm saying obviously it's very very different but what i'm saying is that if say red 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 dead redemption had come out um and had you know the exact same characters and writing that it's got that it's been rightly praised for you know not everybody loved it of course because there's nothing that everybody loves but most people agreed that deadly premonition had uh, sorry red dead redemption had you know strong writing strong characters strong performances and for the most part a good story if it had had the same if if the game world hadn't looked like it did if it looked like if it had as low a polygon count and as as terrible textures as as deadly premonition um you know would it i, I just think it would have you been torn apart have the same number of players you unfortunately in this day and age you have people who will judge a book by its cover they will look at screenshots and they will decide then and there if they are playing that game because it looks good or they are going to avoid it because they don't like well, the it's appearance always, it's always it. been and, the way it's nothing new it, i think now more than ever the, the, the spectrum is so wide on you know color palettes color style stylizations formats uh genres that People can afford to maybe be a little bit more choosy on what they play. I mean, you you look back to say, the N sixty four era or the or the PlayStation era where you sort of had a more focus on games. Certainly in the cartridge era, where 
you couldn't just go and say, well, I'm not playing that one because I'm playing that one because sometimes the wait would be that long between titles, whereas you look in this day and age, we're, we're in an era where you're surprised if you don't get two or three games released every week now, and it gives that variety. So our uh, people sadly will ignore Deadly Premonition. I, I know people that will say that have told me they'll never play it because... Look at it. Why would I play that when I can go mm. and play something I've got else? a different answer to that question, and, and, and maybe it's cheating somewhat. I, I think you'd, you'd look at something like Red Dead Redemption, and the graphics in there is part of that, that experience. Like Red Dead Redemption wouldn't feel like the same game, but part of the reasons why I love that game is that it looks the way it does. Mm. Strangely, I think that's the same with Deadly Premonition. I, I honestly don't know if this game was some sort of AAA game mm. that had all these things ironed out, whether I would have... If it looked like Uncharted as or, much you know, as I did. had I the think, production values of the of The Last of Us or something, yeah, I, what, I, I would it be worse? There's there was something inside me that was playing this game, and all those elements, the fact that it looked kind of ropey, it looked like a PlayStation 2 game on the current-gen console, the sound effects and all that stuff, kind of endeared it to me a lot more than I think if it was just a, a straight lace. oh yeah, that's got okay production values and the story is great it's just something about the whole package that that really made me kind of smile and i you know whether it was on purpose i doubt that very much but for me you know it's just it kind of works as a whole in deadly premonition there's so many elements to that game that are so far off center that you you think you approach it mentally in a different way you understand that hey this studio clearly didn't have a huge budget um you know if if this is how they've had to put out a game. How have they tried to make up for it in other ways? Uh, maybe the fact that the graphics, the sound, the animation, etc., really aren't that great. Almost focuses you more on the on the the, the story and the characterization because they almost come through front and center because everything else, you know, t- takes a backseat to the quality of the game. And and I think I think Tony's right. Maybe the fact that everything is so far off. It becomes endearing because you see the true qualities of that game almost because there's nothing else masking them. So the the philosophy behind Kane and Rince when I came up with the idea for this particular sort of podcast was that uh, we would just try to uh, talk about the you know the the experience of the game out of context, not worry about you know how much it costs to make its marketing budget how its file size you know you see some people even talking about you know this game can't be very good because it's under a gig in size or whatever and to me that's just ridiculous because you know we should be uh you know if we are going to take games seriously we should be based on the experience we have but the reason i raised that subject is is more of a, a wider thing rather than about deadly premonition it's more about just how it, it comes back to that thing again about how expectations can affect and experience so much, you know. Um, I think a, another comparison to that, just to interject there, would be something like The Walking Dead, which had quite terrible control mechanics, and it didn't particularly look that impressive, but yet the story and the characterization and that also came shining through, and, and that was arguably the controls in that, bar the driving, were worse in The Walking Dead than Deadly Premonition. And I guess, yeah, and I guess we're at a point where, you know, things like writing and, and, and story are given as much credence and in, and in some ga- in games where it's where that is the focus more more so than the, the presentation stuff. But I am I would be fascinated to play Deadly Premonition with all the good things, but also the production values. Of a, I, of I a, must admit, though, going, I mean, going into I think someone like me would have a different perspective of this because I came into this game knowing about how this game was going to look how oh, it was going to play I did too I played it I played so, it after 
yeah. I'd imagine as a, a reviewer being sent a you know review code through and it landed on the doorstep firing up and thinking, huh? Mm. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of the charm and a lot of the special moments in the game don't happen all the way till the very end. And you know that could be anything like, you know for my playthrough very long or you know 18 or so hours probably for a normal playthrough and I bet some reviewers didn't get that far just totally you know, based uh, it on yeah. what they saw at the very start and went Jesus Christ that is a bunch of shit I was thinking about this very thing as somebody now who does have to review several games a week often not getting nearly as much time with them as ideally I would like I was thinking how would I have reviewed Deadly Premonition the first time around if I'd received that copy of that 360 game uh, in you know prior to release in 2010 you know say it was a simultaneous worldwide release so I'd got no inkling of anything about it and I got it like a month before it came out everywhere I think if I'd only had you know a relatively short amount of time with it I'd have struggled to give it the review that I certainly you know my 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 summary in in this podcast will be um, because so much of what's good about it just doesn't make itself known and that's not to say that I review games you know sh- in a shallow way based on their audio visuals and, and things like that but this, you know this is why Kane and Rince tries to do what it what it does and actually you know we talk about games that we finish because I don't think this game reveals its chance for a long time hence anecdotally people give up on it early I think from a reviewing standpoint as well it also depends on what the preferences of the actual reviewer are I mean we have a three word review later on from a gentleman called Scott Munro um, who you know, back when this game was released, was the the games reporter and reviewer for the Daily Record in Scotland. And at the time, he reviewed it very highly in his paper and later awarded it his Game of the Year award. Um, Now, I know that Scott himself doesn't like racing games, he doesn't like shooters, and he tends to stay away from anything that is so AAA that he feels it's going to lose any sort of intimacy with the player. Um, I mean, he'll play them, but he won't actively sort of pursue them. So games like Assassin's Creed, for example, have little to no interest in him. So something like this was was obviously very interesting to him. And as a reviewer, obviously those maybe came through a lot quicker for him, the, the, the positives, that is, came through a lot quicker than him than it would for, say, many of us who are maybe far more, I don't really want to say varied because it sounds wrong, but, you know, you know far more open to, to different experiences. They have a preference that, to, to play a wider range of, of games. Yeah, and that, again, that's that's totally, you know, something that I, I like to be, you know, equally open and, uh, and accessible to, you know, whatever where whatever the game comes from. And as I say, whatever its price, its file size, its development history, I think, you know, that's we, we try to cover a good spread on, on this podcast. And I would hate to, you know, lock myself out of, of, you know, experiences based on preconceptions, which is basically what, what that's doing not picking on Scott here um, but I, yeah I genuinely would totally have had sympathy for reviewers who <laughs> underrated um, Deadly Premonition based on based on their 5 to 10 hours or whatever they might have managed to snatch with it because well, I mean I can understand why somebody would give this a very low review I mean it, certainly if you don't like Twin Peaks type style kind of well there's that as well I could see yeah. how yeah. you know some of the over the over the top elements would just turn you off even without seeing the bigger reveals at the end just like yeah that, that really isn't doing anything for me and you a know, lot of reviewers that would be looking at this game as to how it would kind of appeal to a wider audience would be looking at it. the graphics and the audio and how technically mm-hmm. proficient it is you know 
Yeah, that's just it. I mean, I, I reviewed it for um, a very, very mainstream site, BT Games, and uh, and obviously I have to bear that in mind when I'm when I'm reviewing games for that site. You have to know your audience. Um, but I still, you know, I still gave it a four star review and um, basically, you know, said to that audience, knowing knowing that demographic, basically say, you know, if you can get past the 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 rickety the rickety gameplay and visuals there's there's a you know there's a worthwhile experience to be had here but it will you know for a lot of people it will require effort and putting certain you know (laughs) certain things aside for a while i don't know how far down this comparison rabbit hole we want to go with (laughs) and other games Hmm. but I'm, i'm really curious to know how you guys feel about uh, Deadly Premonition versus something like Alan Wake, which kind of came <laughs> yeah. out around the same time. Follows they were, the twin they were both 2010 games, weren't they? I think yeah, fascinating. Same, I was yeah. thinking about this earlier. Yeah, and it had a much better, much more polished presentation. Right, everything yeah, looked yeah. better, and you know it was received better in general by <laughs> by critics. But when I talk to people, you know, anecdotally, I find far more problems and contention with the story and the plot in Alan Wake mm-hmm. than, than people who go up in arms about the actual writing in Deadly Premonition. You know, in Deadly Premonition, it's always about the mechanics, whereas in Alan Wake, people really get on it about the story and, and that sort of thing. So wh- where do you guys, what do you guys think about all I that? I mean, I, I think, essentially, where Alan Wake is weakest is where Deadly Premonition is strongest and vice versa. Mm. And I think if you put the... the Sort of the world and the, the characters, and the, especially the lead character and scenario into Alan Wake, you would have an absolutely beyond phenomenal game. Of course, you could go the other way and have one of the worst games ever made. But <laughs> well, that's there. Yeah, that was kind of what I was saying. You know, yeah. I mean, Alan Wake's a, a better example than Red Dead Redemption because it is basically the same setup. Yeah, um, yeah. That those that level of polish, those that the money that they that Remedy and Microsoft put into Alan Wake with Deadly Premonition, would it have improved the experience? You know, just the lighting effects and stuff like that. I mean, as far as the the comparison goes here, I mean, it's not just the story itself, you know, it's the mechanics and how deep you can get into that world in Deadly Premonition Mm. compared to Alan Wake. Because apparently Alan Wake was originally going to be open world itself, possibly a lot like Deadly Premonition, but it became a lot more linear, a lot more shallow even, and uh, while I enjoyed it quite a bit, you know, you just couldn't get into the cartels that much because you couldn't interact with them on a daily basis you couldn't go sneaking around their houses and turning up their flowers you know you just and york's just much more likable well i Um, think that's that's what i was going to say with uh, regarding the two characters is the game starts and alan with alan wake and you're like alan wake's a dick and he's a dick and and you you start the you start the game with york and you're like york's a dick but he's brilliant and he's you know <laughs> yeah. all the things he's the city slicker he's rude he's obnoxious he doesn't treat people the same because they're not from the you know they're from the past and yet you think this guy is superb the thing the thing is though i mean i don't he's never actually been mean about it you know it's, it just seems to be a very matter of fact kind of way that he deals with them and i mean yeah, the way that he's introduced nature. you know he's like checking out a laptop he's looking at seeds he's on the phone and he's having a <laughs> psychological discussion about tom and jerry you know Mm. It's uh, yeah, that's a absolutely. Garbage, you know? And but it, of course, on the flip side, the the combat in Alan Wake was was good enough to hang on a, a, a separate downloadable game off it. Whereas, can you imagine a deadly <laughs> premonition combat based game? It would be a pile of fucking shit. I can only dream. Yeah, actually, that's one thing that I that I like about Deadly Premonition is you can kind of just run past your enemies and <laughs> yeah. not waste yeah. your time. I wish I'd done that. <laughs> yeah, I think there's maybe two. 
I think there's two scenarios in the whole game, isn't there, where, where bad boss battles that you can't, and it's when you're facing the, the crawling dead, which I'm yeah, be surprised if anyone, yeah, I'd be surprised if anyone enjoyed those moments, and the bits where you had to kill enough of the undead, un whatever. I don't really know what they well, are. They're, Possess- yeah, they're people who have been possessed, possessed and by, by... Well, it's the, 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 chemi- the military experiments yeah. in the 50s. Um, horrified, the, the, yeah. We'll say the, the gas kicks up when and it rains. And you've got to basically. kill enough of those for a door to unlock, but those are actually quite few and far between. Unfortunately, I only realised this about two-thirds of the way through the game, and about yeah. two-thirds of the way through the game, I just started running past everyone and opening doors, and that was a much better game. And there are some areas where randomly the enemies just keep respawning forever, and, and it doesn't yeah, tell you. Yeah, especially when they're yeah. in the middle of the path and you can't walk around either side of them. That's always yeah. cool. Well, just, just to make you guys feel better, I, yeah, my total amount of enemies killed in that game was around 900. So, wow. I killed, I killed yeah, my, mine, my, mine my was fair share. 800. What's the population of that town? Um, 100. Yeah, about 900. I can make you feel better, because I never found the walkie-talkie. The, I never even knew the walk. That's crazy. No, me neither. Yeah. No. How did I play that? <laughs> I, got, no, what, 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 I, I only found out about the walkie-talkie when um, I inquired, I think, about the driving in the game or something, and Tony and Sean, etc., mentioned the walkie-talkie and doing the side mission, and I looked at the, the wiki for it, and it said the latest you can get it is Chapter 10, and I was on Chapter 10. I was like, oh, my God, drop the main quest, and I went and got the walkie-talkie. How, and can you... Can you I didn't. I didn't do when I played it through on on 360 on easy. I didn't. I I only did the uh, the very minimal amount of, of minimum side quests um, that I came across. So I didn't. I, I liked it that that all that stuff where you're kind of following people around and and timing things and and doing stuff. It re- reminded me of two things. It reminded me of the Bombers Club in Majora's Mask, um, and also Gregory Horror Show on the PS2. It was uh, that, those games have both got that that exact same sort of um, mechanic in where you're you're sort of observing and getting involved in uh, events that continue without your uh, input. Um, but the walkie-talkie, what, how do you get it? it what was, does it do? You had to do a, a side quest for George, and the first one you do for him is you have to find his missing weight, Sylvester. Yeah, lost so Arnold. You, that so that you, one so is, is unavoidable. And Arnold yeah. at the start, and there yes. is weights. And then yeah. once you've done that, the second one, you go to his house late at night, I think it's after 9pm, and he requests a, a f- flower. Name this flower. flower yeah. which, uh, oh, I found the flower. Yeah, they're the yeah. only ones that grow when it's raining. You can only collect them when it's raining. And he wants mm. one for his mother because it was his mother's favourite flower. So you you get him one of those and he was, oh, how can I thank you? Here's a walkie-talkie whenever you need a lift anywhere. Do it. But uh, the, the, the interesting thing about Deadly Premonition is all side quests are used to A, both get to know the characters better, and B, reward the player massively for going out of the mm. way and do them. From you know, Some side quests will give you a weapon with infinite ammo and others will give you useful stuff like the walkie-talkie for fast travel. Now, just to go sideways for a second, I'd actually heard about these beforehand because I was looking at the best way to play Deadly Premonition, which is ignore as many spoilers as you can, but get these items. If you don't have them, it's going to be a nightmare. And the thing is, I missed a shitload of side quests because I didn't understand the, the kind of the time limits in the game. Yeah. yeah. At the bottom right, it says that you've got a, a certain time limit to get the main quest done. So I was always rushing to try and get those done on the same day. Yeah. And what same I here. didn't understand yeah. is you can do it any day. Yeah, any time. As, as long as, as it's between, between those two the, points. Yeah, yeah, as long as it's between those hours, you can do it in a month from now if you prefer, you know? No. And I actually missed quite a lot of the game it because of that. It doesn't sell a whole lot of the side quests and how to activate them, how to collect them. You've got to seek them out, stuff. haven't you? And you do, just yeah. on, on top of that, just as, as an aside, 
Um, the dead zone in my 360 pad was screwed as well, so I was continually veering to the left <laughs> while I was driving on a map that continually reoriented itself, and I didn't have a goddamn clue where I was going half the time. Uh, 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 Darren, the continually veering to the left thing, that's nothing to do with your controller. That's how it works in Deadly Premonition. I'd actually heard that it would, like, <laughs> wobble, but I didn't know that it was quite that pronounced. No, it's... It's it's fucked. I mean, it's the th- absolutely th- yeah. disastrous. I mean, the late 90s Ford Mondeo's always veering to the left. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just needed to get a wheel alignment. Yeah, you, just, that, you needed that to was do part the, side of the game. Quest. You didn't know yeah. that? Yeah, that was a side quest. <laughs> well, I ended up getting the best car in the game, but I'll have to let to the end as well because, as I said, I was trying to get the main mission out of the way. It's kind of strange, though. I mean, don't you get like a police car or something? And you've still you do, the, the, the standard, the base of the standard car you get in the game is a police car, which you can pick up at any point. Um, then you have a flare, which you can send out and either get, depending what, what um, if you've got like DLC, which you get with the uh, the director's car, you can get that. Does every but... police car on the force like veer to the left or? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. How, they, that's just, how they like it. That was one about two of them, so. I mean, that's, thankfully, that's one of the things they fixed in the director's car is that you it don't, is, you don't yes. veer to the left. I mean, the, the, it's legendary driving, so everyone goes on about the driving, and it, it's understandable because the cars they don't, not they don't really control very well. They they go forwards, they go backwards, but if you touch the 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 brake quite often, depending on which car you drive, they stop dead. And then they've got like physics on them, so the car kind of does this it's ridiculous got the kind best of handbrake ever as well. The handbrake in that game is amazing. Um, and then you kind of got a drift button which spins the car around almost instantaneously. Um, and a lot of the cars just don't go particularly fast. I mean, you can do side quests which um, improve handling, improve speed, uh, improve distance on the fuel. Because you know this this almost feels like a complete callback to an old PS2 game that you have actually fuel in your car that you need to, you know need to fill up in the in the gas every now and again. Which I know some people have fallen. Yeah, foul to. The, these again, these are mechanics. I was I was thinking about this uh, mechanics like the hunger, the tiredness, the petrol really stuff odd, like this. Yeah. The, these are things that. Another game, if a game that wasn't considered, uh, uh, you know, in some circles, a holier than thou, untouchable cult classic. <laughs> these, if these mechanics had found their way into, hmm, say, Grand Theft Auto, uh, San Andreas, um, they would, they would be, they would be shot down in flames as being, you know, pernickety, pointless, no fun. But what a number of those uh, facets in San Andreas, though, you know, like um, going to the gym to get your fitness up and all the rest. Of that's that. exa- that's yeah. exactly yeah. why I said it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't actually, but there's it, there's always ways around it. I mean, this this is the thing. I mean, if you go to the Tree of Anna, um, which is a, a spot where one of the main characters dies, it's it's in the attract mode, so yes. you can. It's, it, yeah, um, it's the very opening to the game. So if you go to the Tree of Anna, there right behind that, uh, there's a little hut where you can sleep, basically progress time. And if you sleep, then you become hungry. Um, but there's a, a can of infant spawning uh, pickles behind there, so you just go around there, smash it take it you can only take maximum of three times and every time that you because quite often you're after a either night or day cycle for certain quests or it needs to be a, a rainy day for certain quests so you could be i mean there there would be times where i'd sleep for about 62 hours just <laughs> so i could actually get a rainy day to do a quest by which time of course you're a little hungry so you pop around the back of this thing eat, eat your pickles and, and job done none of that stuff i mean it, it made me laugh i probably spent the best part of five hours messing around with all that stuff but i don't know once again kind of charming it never got in a way never was i on a quest and went oh i'm hungry i don't even know what happens oh, when you're hungry you, you start to lose health but it wasn't too demanding, i never had that when you, know, you when you lose your hunger hard. bar you die or, or really? you're brought around in the hospital instant starvation you just yeah uh, your bar starts also things like this uh the shaving like you know 
a, a laughable one-off uh, event in heavy rain, and <laughs> this is something that um, that you you don't have to do. But um, it, well, in the cutscenes, you start growing beards. Yeah, I yeah. really quite like that touch. I thought that was really soup, cool. You start getting flies buzzing around your face. Yeah, yeah and you're, you're a smelly, stinky yeah. agent. Yeah, and you get docked paid by the FBI because you're a disgrace to the force. And also yeah. the suits, different. You could collect different suits, and different suits have different attributes to your as a character. So. Some suits, I think that I was using Passion Red, which you get towards the end of the game, which gives you about a quarter more health. Um, or you get... Uh, there was another one, which is like a pure white suit, which gives basically um, increases your pulse gauge. Um, or just, you know, a really nice red suit just to go fishing in, which I was doing. Yeah, I was going to ask about the fishing. Um, did anyone spend much time fishing? I did all the side quests. So. How much fishing? I think there's four, five. No, there's more than that. I think there's seven fishing side quests, and then there's one, one of the main ones. As, it, as fishing mini games uh, goes, uh, where does it rank? In you know, is it, is it really Ocarina odd, of no, Time or is it Animal odd, Crossing? You throw the bait in, you get a, you get a bite, but then you've got a, you got to let there's like basically loads of squares, and there's rewards. You either get catch a fish, you catch a. Well, the idea why you're fishing is you can catch one of the the cards, uh, which goes towards your card collection. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, actually, there is a section. For the main mission, you have to fish a briefcase That's, out of the waterfall. I remember that now. Yes. Yeah, so you're just yeah. trying to. These square boxes are whizzing past down the bottom. You need to just about read when to hit the right thing, and it normally takes about five more boxes before it it comes to a halt. So, so how much uh, of your 42 hours playtime would you say was devoted to side quests, Tony? I mean, this this is hard for me because I, obviously I've only ever played through the game once so I don't you know what was mm. your standard play if for somebody that hasn't actually played 16 hours maybe mine, sure. mine was 19 and a half but I did maybe yeah. I did three side quests so I think they the, say the average so, is about yeah, 17 hours 17 to 18 hours done for the main so mm. sounds about, about right 25 I, I don't hours. remember the amount yeah. of time that I spent you know from beginning to end but I felt like throughout the game um, the my the impetus to to progress and you know see the next uh, interaction with a character and move the story forward, or just just hear the next thing that York had to say, because I was hanging on every word, you know, just waiting mm. for something crazy to come out of his mouth. That was so much more uh, compelling than any side quest. So I just I just really didn't care. Like I, I picked up Sylvester for George, and then I was like, okay, I'm done with you, and I don't really need to do any more of these. I just I'm just going to continue. I, I think some of it comes from the fact that I'd been warned to to get certain weapons, uh, and you should do. Uh, that's what sent me down the, the side quest route, realizing that suddenly I had infinite weapon, well, weapons that had infinite ammo. Um, for instance, uh, pretty early in the game, you can get the magman, which is all but be it one shot kill on mm. every enemy apart from the crawling ones. And but how you, much do you really need those, honestly? Doesn't well, the, the main handgun has infinite ammo and yeah, no um, enemy is difficult? You don't really need them. I think it's more that it felt like rather than just have the side quests to extend the time, I think they put the side quests in there that if you took the time to do them, they were going to reward the yeah, player. Yeah, but there's... I mean, outside of that, yeah, I mean, the rewards are very nice, but actually the, the side quests themselves are, are quite quirky and, and kind of, I think, add to a, a bigger overall picture of what um, what actually, or who Greenvale is. Um, for instance, you know, Emily, I think there, there's reference in the actual main storyline that she's not a very good cook, uh, or she makes you a, a terrible coffee. You wouldn't get the reason why she makes you a terrible coffee unless you did a bunch of her side quests, which you can only do when it's raining because basically she's not at work when it rains because the town folk go inside and if you go to her apartment then over a number of period of days um you 
you'd start doing these weird cooking side quests for her, which are basically all you need to do is work out what she's trying to cook, go and buy the ingredients, bring it back, and then cook the meal with her, and you, you sit down and have this, have a, a dinner with her, and then have a conversation with her. Now, there's I think there's only four side quests with her for doing that, but then there's about you know 15 minutes worth of, of extra dialogue in that. So I I felt that you know I got to know Emily a lot more than just what she was in that thing and yeah it felt like there was this personal connection that we were starting to become a couple because we'd spent this time in our in our own place now it's that's not a lot but it was enough for me to kind of go yeah that's you know that's sweet and then i'm sure people would have come across um sigourney who is uh, she has a pot and it needs delivering and uh please did, did, nobody no no she her dialogue is hilarious she <laughs> she she basically she shouts all the time i've got to get i've got to get to home my pot is getting cold and she does this over and over and over again and she gets starts getting hysterical about her pot that's got something inside of it and it's going to get cold and there's i think once again six side quests there and it's basically you know a take her from a to b and the the distances become ever much more increased and she starts getting every every more frantic and by the time you get to the sixth side quest you're desperate to know what the hell she is cooking in this pot because she's this crazy old lady and i'm not going to spoil it for you because you should go for the torment of her saying (laughs) this pot is getting cold and it's crazy but it's once again, it's really, really charming. And yeah. I mean, you see, you see her at the community centre, don't you? You <laughs> see her at the community centre when you meet all the characters. Um, and she was driving me mad, talking about that part. But yeah. I didn't follow up the side quests. Um, and you've got the up- upgrading your car route, where you've got this crazy colonel who talks about the war that he was in, and you don't really know whether he was actually in a war. He's just absolutely mad. Um, you've got the part-time job of cleaning up the... The, the back room, um, which is how you get one of, the, one of the best weapons in the game, which is basically a guitar, which the you can use. Guitar. One-hit one kill um, enemies, which is... Melee kill. Yeah, which is kind of fun. But <laughs> Doesn't then, play it. But then that's also got <clears> a really good uh, side quest with Keith, who's, a, once again, another charming character. So, although I agree, the main storyline is where I think the, the top writing actually exists, just spending time in Greenvale and, and you know talking to the inhabitants, working actually what they need, um, and really kind of spending maybe you know even if it's just a couple of hours of each one. I think that's probably why I started to fall in love with a bit more of the game. It's just I knew who these people were, so when they were starting to be offed in the main storyline, I actually there was part of me who was like, no, I, I've had a really long conversation with her. I understand where she's coming from and why she she owns that. Um, why there's a um, an art gallery with just trees in there because if you follow a dialogue thing, you you, you know you realise you know she that's her peaceful place is the trees and she just wants to live in a place of trees and that's why she made an art gallery of trees like just stuff like that. So, no, most of the women in the town get to live in a place of trees ultimately. Yeah, they do by being brutally murdered, which is handy.
Um, yes, the one aspect of the sound uh, Darren obviously was keen to talk about, I'm sure we all are, um, that we didn't, was the music. Um, life is beautiful. Now, mm-hmm. Life is beautiful, which is uh, famously, I'm sure people will have picked up on this already, but it's a, it's a slight twist on the Super Mario World overworld theme, and I believe quite deliberately so. Um, there's three composers mentioned and three performers mentioned in the credits, but uh, who composed what and who performed what, uh, I'm afraid I don't know. Other people may. Um, the famous thing, probably the most famous aspect about the use of music in Deadly Premonition is the complete uh, crashing juxtapositions between on-screen events and the tone of the music being used. So you may have a particularly horrific scene suddenly inter- interrupted by some jazz funk, or uh, you may have uh, some comedy backed by some tragic, spooky saxophone. I'd just like to you say just- here that the dinner scene is a perfect example of that. Yes, talk about uh, talk about that scene. It's a, well, yeah. it's just it's at the end of a another strenuous day for the force. They go into a diner just to sit down, relax, and talk to each other for a while. And Emily asks York uh, what life was like as an FBI agent. So they're all sitting down, and there's this pleasant music playing in the background. And York decides to graphically illustrate the the mechanics of a serial killer's mind, going around murdering all these uh, these young women, cutting off their heads from the neck, and then cleaning up their skulls for use as uh, uh, kitchen appliances. And he's basically just... uh, All of this to him is... It's not exactly a joke. It's just something that happens and... It's normal dinner time conversation. Yeah, you can kind of like throw in a quirky bit of humour there, you know. And they're like, oh, Jesus, you can can shut up now. He's like, well, I was about to tell you about this rapist, you know. (laughs) And it's just, what? You know, York, you are a a madman. You are just completely out of cute skew with the reality. Yes, he's so, so socially inept, um, and, and that's one of his many um, charms. Uh, yeah, and uh, apparently there, there, there's no official soundtrack to the game, but um, you can download it from uh, the uh, Welcome to Greenvale fan site. Somebody's compiled all the all the tracks. Um, I don't think there's any harm in that, as it's not available legally. But apparently there are 48 tracks. Um, but to play the game, uh, you would probably own. You would might guess that there are like eight or something because because the the key themes seem to repeat over and over again um but yes there's there's some ra- remarkable music in there um a little research tells me that uh, one of the composers ryu kinugasa worked on resident evil zero at least um and hiromi mizutani worked on things like naruto the movie and things like that and guilty gear as well but beyond that as i say i don't know who did what um but there's some crazily good stuff in there. Yeah, there, and it's once again, it's really odd because the quality of the music seems to be far outweigh the, the production values of the game. So you could feel yeah. like that you know the music here would be in some big AAA release. So that's what makes it stand out even more because you're sitting there going, "This is a superb acrobatic piece," and why, why it's is quite it here? amusing because it's like it's all the right music in all the wrong places, and mm-hmm. it's, it's you sort of appreciate the quality of the music whilst sort of like thinking that this is crazy i can understand certain elements being wrong but like music you you really have to understand the mood of um the story being told and you'd play the right music accordingly so they must be doing that on purpose just as a a quirkiness kind of well this is this will be make it slightly different well i think it goes right along with york himself of being so socially awkward you know and not understanding Mm. when how to act in what situation it's sort of the same thing as the music it doesn't know how to you know what music to to be at any given moment 
It's just like York. Yeah, absolutely yeah, true. And it is interesting that the guy that's the most socially inept is definitely the most interesting character for me. Yeah, uh, that that was that's a beautiful segue, Darren. Uh, that was m- my next uh, duty was to bring in the most important thing, really, uh, which is uh, to talk about the characters. And we must start with Francis York Morgan. Anyone have anything to say about Francis? Call him York. Everyone calls him. Call him York. Yeah, that's yeah, a good everyone point. calls York. him York. Um, yeah, so he's. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's a classic scenario. Uh, you've seen it in everything from the Wicker Man to Hot Fuzz. It's 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 the the out of towner in the uh, you know the the city man in the uh, slightly creepy uh, out of the way settlement where everyone seems to know each other and everyone seems to have a secret. Um, he's sent there. He's on this big murder case involving these red seeds. Which is kind of weird. Obviously, there's it's not just Twin Peaks. There's obviously there's a Silence of the Lambs thing going on as well. The, the first autopsy they yeah. do, um, he pulls the thing out the of Anna's throat. Anna, a trivia fact uh, here pointed out to me by friend of the show uh, Simon Cole, um, voiced by the same voice actor Melissa Hutchinson as uh, Clementine out of The Walking Dead. <laughs> Who I did not know that, um, but he's an interesting character. Uh, we learn many things about him throughout the course of the adventure right and uh, obviously this is a huge spoiler we've already warned you um, the way we see him throughout the game is not the way that everyone else sees him we learn right at the end that in fact he has a dead eye and white hair mm-hmm. yeah he's always referred to isn't he as, as the man with the scar um, mm. sort of maybe drawing attention away from obviously the disfigurement of his eye and his hair but you know he obviously he sees himself as York, uh, you, you sort of realise all through the game he's talking to the character Zach, and it, it's sort of a way for the player to sort of, uh, a way for the, the the character himself to sort of communicate with you as the player and sort of bring you into the action. That for the majority of the game you class yourself as Zach, um, mm. and and him talking to you. Uh, whereas obviously at the at the end of the game when a traumatic moment happens that he's sort of referred to a few times as his childhood that he had a traumatic childhood he mentions to Emily that you know his, his mother was killed and and so forth and th- that's the day he became friends with Zach and uh, obviously at the end it swings around you realise that he, only he sees himself as York everyone else actually sees him as Zach uh, and it, it's the other personality has, has sort of been leading him through throughout the duration of his life until the conclusion of, of sort of the case that he's been working on um, he's obsessed uh, finds uh, relationships difficult he says very early, early on although he's obviously attracted to Emily um, he's obsessed with uh, 80s movie trivia mm-hmm. um, which a lot of which is optional if you don't press the X button while sitting in the car or presumably how does that play out if you if you if you're skipping car travel well I mean you don't entirely skip car travel there there's there's a number of points in the game where you can uh, walk to and then quite often you still have to travel between it, it normally it limits it down to normally about a minute unless you're going to Harry's house which is about you know, 15 minutes to drive up to his blinking long driveway so mm-hmm. yeah there's still plenty of time to listen to, to all the, the Zach interludes mm. um, but yeah I remember Darren particularly you uh, at the time saying that he was one of your, your favourite characters you played as in gaming yeah he certainly is I mean the thing is he's just He's very different, and as I said, it's just the fact that that social awkwardness and the way that he kind of bounces off everyone and leaves them stunned—it's <laughs> continually amusing, you know. It, does it does it ring, you know, true for you? Is Absolutely that what you're not. To say? I'm a I'm a social butterfly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
Um, what we'll do is, I think, um, we'll obviously talk more about York as we go along, um, conscious of time as well. But we'll talk about some of the other characters. I'll, 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 I'll say. I'll say the name and then people just dive in if we've got something to talk about them, any memories, anecdotes or, or any anything pertinent. So there's Anna, who uh, obviously is dead at the start of the game. Uh, other other members of the town, of town folk include uh, Becky, Becky Ames, Carol McLean, Brian the Insomniac. Mm-hmm. You can yeah, find the, him in the, the grave. The graveyard, uh, the grave digger in the graveyard. Obviously uh, set up to be, you know, a creepy character. Just looks like Steve Buscemi to me. <laughs> Which, um, of course, him being a creepy character means that he's probably not guilty of anything at all. No, being it's, he's, a, he's a grave digger. Right, he's digger. completely normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's the only normal one in the town. Uh, Diane Ames. Uh, most of the women uh, are relatively young and conventionally attractive and end up getting hacked to death by the raincoat killer who's the first time we've mentioned the raincoat killer who is the star of the box um has kind of jawa eyes yeah <laughs> that's fair, yeah uh you meet him fairly early on in the game right in the prologue in fact um and generally your meetings with him involve pretty terrible quick time events yes yeah but yet he manages to have a certain menace about him. The game's, I would say, for a survival horror slash psychological thriller, thriller, the game is never really scary, is it? It's kind of just weird more than frightening. It, it, Did anyone it, find it, it scary? It comes close. It comes close to the scares in the moments where you have to hide from, from the wrinkle killer. In, when, oh, in the, yeah, yeah, with the camera. When it splits yeah. and you sort of see from his perspective in a box and the, mm. when the game decides he wants to look even worse. Um, and and you're, you can go and hide under a desk or in a locker. And it's very akin to something like the <laughs> Clock Tower games, if anyone, if anyone played those. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Except for instead of there only being one place to hide and him not finding you, you've simply hold your breath and then he can't see you. <laughs> that is the problem, you know. Like One of the, the biggest problems with the, the hiding aspect is that it always cuts to this really stupid scene of York holding his breath, you know. It's like... <gasps> yeah, and he can't <laughs> hold his breath for very long. He, he holds it for maybe seven seconds. Well, he is a smoker. Yeah, heavy, clearly. Heavy smoker. I, I, I was scared a few times, actually. Um, the... The, the general going into the other world uh, and you know run, you can run past enemies and you can shoot enemies and it's it's not too hard but actually um to get some of the more cards and, and the secret weapons you need to return back to those worlds so essentially i played every one of those worlds twice because you have to return back and then oh, wow. they they populate those worlds with double the amount of enemies um say more crawlers uh, and they've got a lot more health and they they generally move about three times as fast so um so, so but there, I mean, I think the gameplay can be scary. It just you, you kind of have to go looking Skittle for it or plan. <laughs> yeah, or go uh, harder difficulties. Go on, Eddie. My fear was mostly based in, oh man, I don't want to mess this up because I know that the mechanics are pretty terrible <laughs> yeah. and it's possible for me to mess up pretty easily. So I yeah. better focus so I don't screw it up and I don't lose time. Classic I wanna, survival horror I in that way. Going. The the thing is though, like Silent Hill, famously that game had uh, also pretty awful mechanics. I think I think if you played it now, like Silent Hill, Silent Hills one and two, the the walking of the characters and the combat would probably be even worse than um, than Deadly mm-hmm. Premonitions. But those games were terrifying, not only um, because of that exact fear of having to redo bits with those terrible mechanics, but just the audio visual impact was was much much greater. I would always try to encourage my friends to actually play the game while I watched for the early Silent Hill games. Yeah. Because that was 
Watching was the interesting part, whereas playing was just horrible. Well, that's interesting because, uh, yeah, some of our correspondents have said the same about about Deadly Premonition. I can definitely see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, there, I, I just there, there are some bits later on which we will obviously come to soon. Um, we'll have to uh, that are genuinely icky, but not. Yeah, it's it's not scary like um, yeah, like Silent Hill. There are some very grotesque bits, especially towards the end. Yes. Uh, so there's Emily, um, who is the very first character York meets in the game, um, and of course, therefore, one of the most significant. Uh, she meets. Uh, speaking of some of the most grotesque parts of the game, um, yeah, the, that the, probably the bits that I remember the most strongly <laughs> are her demise. I'm so glad someone didn't spoil this game for me because. Yeah, the, it's really so. Uh, I suppose we, we may as well mention Forrest Kaysen as well at this point. Then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you might as well give let, the end because you're already there. <laughs> yeah, the, the happy-go-lucky, the happy-go-lucky guy who always happens to be exactly where something's just happened, yet always manages to talk and try and be the the sort of the innocent party. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's maybe we should come back to this because we haven't even mentioned beyond the name Harry Stewart and George. Uh, George and. I, well, no, yeah, I was going to George. I was going to sort of, yeah, include in that, but yeah, okay. Let's there's there's the creepy twins, which is kind of an essential in the in the in the Rainy Woods version. It was uh, two little people, um, creepy dwarves, uh, to use a vernacular. Um, in this, they're the classic creepy children, creepy little people, like mate, children, creepy. In this case, children um, creepier than little people, um, depending on <laughs> how much of a paedophobe you are. Um, yeah, as classically used in things like The Shining and The League of Gentlemen. <laughs> um, uh, Jack the Raging Bull, gas station owner and attendant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jim Green, uh, first person you see in the intro, apart from the, the creepy twins. Uh, Keith Ingram, the milk barn owner. Yeah, he's a rock and roll dude. He's a rock and roll dude. Uh, Lily Ingram, mother of the twins, milk bar manager. Uh, you can tell I'm reading this from the list. I don't normally do this, but in this case, I'll make an exception. Uh, the General Lysander, scrapyard owner and mechanic. The Man in White, a mysterious man. Uh, he's in York's sort of uh, dream world, um, but he looks like Harry Stewart. Yeah, I don't think it ever tries to hide the fact that it that it's not the psych like the psychological version of of Harry Stewart because he has the same things on his throat to to breathe out of that that Harry oh, Stewart does. Right, yeah. Uh, so there's Michael Michael Tillotson um, yeah I mean the, the 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 Harry Stewart Tillotson scenes are some of the more um, striking in the game aren't they I mean for a long time Harry Stewart is is an extremely frightening character um, but only later only much later do you learn that he was the original raincoat killer as I no, recall no his father was oh his, sorry his father and he was, was attacked yeah. uh, he's he's the father of the current raincoat killer. Yes. Yes. So says Mr. Stewart. Yeah. So says Mr. Stewart. With all the rhyming. And the fact uh, that, he, that it's kind of strange that he happens to look like one of the Combine from Half-Life 2 as well. That was yeah. really odd. Um, is it... Who, who is it who has the Sinner's Sandwich? Mr. Stewart does. That's Mr. Yeah, That's Mr. Mr. Stewart's Stewart Sinner's Sandwich. sandwich. But, I mean, once again, you, you do the side quests and you realise that actually... Um, Michael has been um, adopted as a child, and Mr. Stewart has taken him in. Um, and there's a whole 
element about that he's trying to prove to to Mr. Stewart that he's a good enough son. So the hence why he, he he's on his beck and call. And at the very end, if you do a do his side quest, then um, Mr. Stewart takes him in as his son. It's kind of kind of quirky and touchy. It's nice. Mm. And the sinner's sandwich, I believe. Uh, there's a YouTube video out there somewhere of somebody making and eating it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see. It's strawberry jam, cornflakes, and something else. Odd. Was it turkey? Turkey. Yeah, yeah. I think it's turkey. <laughs> jam and cornflakes. I'd eat that. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, it's a bit like cranberry sauce. I like all. I like um, all of them individually. So I don't know why I wouldn't like them all together. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah, that's a good rule to, rule to live by when it comes to food. I must must come up with some recipes for you uh there's the cormax at the diner uh poly oxford the hard of hearing uh hotelier so sweet yeah yeah she, she i mean i'm sure everybody has a moment in deadly permission if they like it where they go oh this game's great or it just clicks with them and they kind of get mm. in its sense of humor and actually polly was the first moment i had there it, it's fairly early in the game and you come to this hotel this huge hotel that nobody stays at because nobody wants to go to this town yet she keeps it running um and you come there and you sit on this massive table it's a ridiculously sized and really long table and so she's old and you're you're at one end she's at the other and you're trying to have this conversation and she can't hear you so she's shouting or you're shouting at her and she keeps misunderstanding what you're talking about to the point where she thinks that you're coming onto her and it's just <laughs> ridiculous like what is going on and it put a great big smile on my face that you know this is a ridiculous scene like why does this exist in a video game but it was so charming it's and and that continues you, you work out that's, eventually that she was a, uh, a beauty queen that's the chapter one isn't it and yeah. it, that's when you start realising that it is in fact a completely different game to how it sells itself in the prologue where you're straight into the action and shooting them and you realise that mm. there's going to be a lot more freedom and a lot more knowing other characters in the game and it was at that point that I thought Oh, actually this is quite interesting because obviously when I originally played it I only finished the prologue and never went back so getting past the prologue this time and then realising that this game is actually completely different to how I imagined it after playing the start was, was quite interesting it was purely because of the, the conversations that you have with Polly and I don't know if it was intentional um, I, I assume it was but the, uh, the the Deerhead Hotel that she runs always remind me of the Overlook Hotel from The Shining so yeah of course mm-hmm. yeah yeah, that's that's another. I mean, obviously, Alan Wake is hugely influenced by uh, Twin Peaks, but also Stephen King. Um, we did do an Alan Wake podcast, issue sixty-four, uh, for those interested. Um, and yeah, there's definitely some. I guess I mean I, I never watched Twin Peaks, so I don't know. I don't know how much of a Stephen King influence there was in that. Um, but it does seem like there might be some. Sort I think of even outside of that, it's where he likes, you know, he obviously loves movies. Um, and yeah, there's no qualms. Yeah. I mean, my favourite scenes in the entirety of the whole game are during the worst elements of the game, and that's the driving when he, you know, when he's yeah, talking to himself just... and he's talking about the like such things as the 1990 re-release of the Little Shop of Horrors with the three minutes additional <laughs> theatrical uh, time mm, or, or yeah. minutiae of yeah, trivia, watching yeah. Jaws because he always loved the idea of going to the small town and a horror happening and how it reminded him of what's <laughs> currently. And it, they were absolutely brilliant like no other game has ever done anything like that sells it so well the voice actor is just so good like ah what brilliant directing you know you can Mm -hmm. tell that he's just so passionate that's the one one thing i wanted to say about the voice acting because there's i've seen this come this has come up on our forum and also tony and i briefly exchanged (laughs) about it last night like the voice acting is a weird thing because i think 
his York's monologues are absolutely fine, good even, but the dialogues between characters are often like very much a throwback to the Japanese survival horrors of the 90s. It's all clunky and stilted yeah. and badly translated and the subtitles don't match I, the words. I think and some of it, like when reading up on, on you know the development of the game and how they had two weeks to capture all the voice voice <laughs> recording for, I think, was it 6,000 lines, you think? Yeah, that, more than that. There might yeah. be something, you know, with the long days, why some lines are delivered so much better than others, and it could have been purely down to the time constraints, because uh, for mm. me, Emily and uh, York, in particular, had some very good voice work. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm. know, a, a few, maybe, duff moments, but for the most part, those two in particular, and bits with George where he was always a bit over the top, but then there's a bit where you go for a drink with him in the bar and he tells you about how his mother used to beat him with uh, tree branches and stuff, and that came off as mm. like really sort of personal, and and you know, for, for that moment, I was totally drawn in the game and listening. And yet, there's some characters like um, Keith is so out there with his whoa, you know, real sort of Japanese early Japanese horror sort of games where it's comes off as really cheesy so there, there are the highs and lows in there um, when you do Keith's side quests um, he does these things all spiritual maps which are you know basically places you go to get better weapons but when he sells you these spiritual maps he tells you about why this place is really haunted and it's this weird green spotlight comes down on him and they're really dark intense stories you've just got this surfer dude voice telling this horrendous horrific story to you and you're like what? It's just a completely wrong voice for the scenario, but it, it works superbly well. Yeah, the second one he was talking about, what was it, people trapped in a train that couldn't get out and it was yeah. set on fire and they were burnt alive or something like that. And I, I actually mm-hmm. did that side quest. Uh, it was quite expensive to buy the maps, but that little bit of story, like, didn't, didn't see that coming. So that was quite cool. Well, I, I think what I was trying to say to you, though, Liam, was that I, I think the actual voice acting is actually... Of, of quite a high standard York in particular and like uh, Carl said Emily you know being two standouts but they the actual acting in the game is once again a juxtaposition with what is going on with the voice itself so there's quite often arm flailing and mm. just ridiculous you know pointing and you know cl- clicking Terrible the fingers and yeah, yeah. like yeah, it's, just, it's like what I don't understand how this corresponds um, with this j- uh Jeff Kramer, the guy who played York's, actually got a really interesting um, CV because normally when we look up voice actors, uh, you find they do they do a lot of cartoons and maybe small parts in movies, sometimes not so small parts, TV shows. This guy only does video games. And not only does he only do video games, he only does pretty small parts in, in video games. So he's been in... Uh, actually, to be fair, he did play the amazing Jaguar in Space Channel 5, and that is a pretty good thing to have on your, uh, you know, in your CV, but bits in Jet Set Radio and Armored Core games and Sonic, uh, sorry, Shadow the Hedgehog, E123 Omega. Um, and he was even in the, the terrible night sequel, Journey of Dreams. And he hasn't done anything since Deadly Premonition. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think if you look across a lot of the people, even sort of the, the secondary and tertiary characters in this game, and you actually look at their voice actors, they're quite experienced voice actors. So I'm assumed that they were asked to sort of be a very specific way for those characters rather than, um, you know, it's not going to try and deliver it like a Rockstar game is or even like Alan Wake, where it's very straight-laced. The whole game tries to steer <clears> as far yeah. away from that as possible. For sure. Um, so uh, back to the characters. Obviously, time is against us. We have uh, Richard and Quint Dunn, uh, father and son, at the bar. 
uh, Sally Graham, unemployed. Roaming Sigourney, as mentioned earlier. Uh, then we have uh, the unfortunate Thomas McLean, who is immediately uh, singled out, as is the way in a lot of uh, video games, as... He's sensitive, he's light on his feet, he's mincing around the office. Of course, he's a cross-dressing homosexual. Uh, But he is a relatively sympathetic character for the most part, Uh, although his voice acting is pretty terrible. Yeah. Especially the crying. Oh, which is in the attract sequence, which is absolutely atrocious. I know, crying acting. um, Yeah, like, again, like a total throwback to, you know, terrible. PlayStation era, sort of. Yeah, Yeah, really, the very kind of the worst. Uh, You've got Usher Johnson, who's a cool (laughs) doctor, who immediately starts profiling um, the killer rather than just doing his job, but at least uh, York does pick him up on that. Uh, Wesley the gunsmith, Willie the dog. Uh, Brian Willie the dog's a great character and of course there's that little easter egg of the map actually being in the shape of Willie the dog yeah (laughs) (laughs) marvellous so uh, we must really uh, go back to George the sheriff at this point so he's one of the first characters you're introduced to the second character in fact Um, he has uh, obviously this was prior to probably prior to the governor's first appearance in the Walking Dead comics but that's who he looks like (laughs) Um, which uh, if anyone's read the Walking Dead comics will know that the governor in the comics is is one of the more evil fictional characters uh, ever which kind of that moustache genuinely um, put me against him from the off it looks a little bit rapey doesn't it let's be honest it's It's a rapey moustache yeah yeah so uh, the story with George is he's the sheriff of the town, as we say, um, and it turns out that uh, unbeknownst to uh, assistant or deputy sheriff, sorry, Emily, um, George is completely obsessed, completely comp- creepily uh, obsessed with I Emily. think she actually knows um, that he likes her and has liked her for the duration of since she moved to town, um, but obviously it goes way above simple attraction he's uh, when you get to his basement you realize it is quite creepy yeah it's all uh, about perspective though <laughs> he was an abused child uh, horribly abused by his mother this is uh, one of those moments where the game takes a, a a surprisingly dark and sudden turn as as george sort of bears all over beer mm-hmm. a, a great great scene yeah that that that's what i was uh, drawing attention to when he was talking about you know being hit with the branches by his mother and stuff and it, it sort of it, I think it's a conversation it lasts maybe five minutes with York just those two in the bar um, before he, he goes home when, when Emily turns up absolute fantastic scene uh, it's like it, all, it feels weird because it almost belongs in a different game because the quality is that sort of straight straight <laughs> up and sort of at yeah. you and you're like wow I'll, I'll be honest though, I mean, the game does tend to bring gravity when it's required. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it, 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 that's it, it does, but it's, it is, the you know, the word, I'm going to use it again, because it's the one to use, it is juxtaposition, isn't it? It is the crashing between scenes of ludicrousness um, that, you know, like chasing a dog around or, or something like that, you know, to a you know, ridiculous comedy piece of music and then within moments you're and it's partly the the interactive nature of video games but also the fact you know sometimes um, I mean, sometimes you just have to laugh at how absurd it is i mean there's a moment where a, a guy gets his face impaled on a hook 
and literally 30 seconds later, the comedy music's on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm doing the, the first autopsy as well, very similar things. You've got people recoiling in horror as York uh, retrieves red seeds from her throat, things like that. But then, yeah, just seconds later, the jazz funk or the or one of the jaunty tunes kicks in. It's remarkable stuff. Yeah, but half a minute later, he's uh, sorted out the ghost chess problem. Yeah. Oh God! Yeah, that puzzle. That 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 puzzle in inverted commas. Yes. Um. Playing. That was the bit I played earlier today. Obviously, um, it's right near the start. The, the the most ludicrously easy puzzle in the history of video games. Where <laughs> you just click on the the chess pieces in the order that they're <laughs> stated to you before be, before it then says and then there's a, you get the message saying. The doctor is downstairs with the deceased. <laughs> the sheriff and his assistant are going like, "Oh God, damn it! More puzzles!" <laughs> <laughs> and York's like, Ha-ha, "I'm cleverer than you because I know this isn't a puzzle. This is not some oblique clue. It means that the doctor is downstairs with the deceased." Uh, extraordinary, yes. Um, I these moments like that where I can't even tell how knowing the game is, or whether something's being lost in translation, or whether the puzzles just are just shit, or whether the jokes on the player or the characters <laughs> what do people whether, think whether they were supposed to use different words that were not so clear. yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah is it translation factor I don't, I don't know about because that. you tend to think that you know Swery himself is like he loves his movies so you can't think that he'd be that far off you know it, it's all of the above I, to be I, honest I think a lot of it is very much intentional <laughs> I'm going to believe that it is yeah I think it's, it's easier I think it's, best it's easier and more enjoyable to believe that it is in fact intentional well, and yeah. also, the, I mean, talking about the, the bad translations and stuff, I, I never play with games with subtitles on. Um, I just it, it takes me out of the environment. But this one in particular, I, I left it. They're right in the centre of the screen as well. They're really obtrusive. But I, I know that. I mean, they're, they're terribly translated on, on occasions. But they, all that once again to me was just this weird part of the experience. And I, I don't know how well that sits with me as a player. That I'm, I'm kind of liking that things to be have have major flaws of them and then finding it as you know a, a positive part of the game but i generally was just kind of you know laughing along with what was going on on screen instead of feeling oh, well that's taken me completely out of this that's just ridiculous um and that's so rarely happens in so many games for me i'm also pretty sure that the font that's used in the subtitles is the same font that's used in el shaddai and i just didn't like it so it was quite weird it's such a sort of unique font and i'm pretty sure it is the same one Again, it looks almost sort of, um, yeah, just like it's. It's like it looks like the video game equivalent of Comic Sans, doesn't mm. it? It's like we've just well, font. Okay, here we go. Um, yeah, I just so to suggest something about the how you guys said there's juxtaposition in these very serious moments versus the the ludicrousness in general, mm. and you kind of say it's it's a, a big clashing uh, combination of elements. But sometimes I feel like without bringing it to that like psychological mm-hmm. level for example with George the the ludicrous parts would just they they you wouldn't be able to justify seeing that at all and at least with with some of the more serious elements of these characters backstories you kind of say oh then that's how that's where this all comes from and that's why these people are so utterly d- deranged <laughs> yeah does it does it help at all or or do you guys just think i'm like justifying for the game because i like it i think it's key to be honest yeah i think so um and and, you know it's something it it comes up in games a lot you know films are often 
uh, criticised and books and other other media art forms are criticised when they're tonally inconsistent. I think video games kind of do it more often and, and sometimes I think that comes down to sort of naivety in, in the writing and the fact that the, <clears throat> the the art form, the media is not as developed as those others but sometimes I think it, it is comes as a result of the interactive nature of games and the fact that you can you have agency over which sort of tones you're experiencing. Now Deadly Premonition sometimes you don't have any agency because the, the, the scenes are written uh, to be as you know all o- tonally all over the place as as anything you can possibly imagine but it's something that it's something that you can't say it's a good thing or about it's like things should be tonally consistent is not is not right because sometimes there is there is pleasure or, or I- excitement especially over the duration as long as a game if it stayed if a game like deadly premonition was dark from the very first minute through to the 20th hour there would be absolutely no impact as as you said, there would be just nothing there from from the moments when it's it's comic. You sort of see that that disparency that you know when it wants to be serious, it hits you absolutely on. And I think you know it, when a game is as long as it is, a movie can get away with being dark. Something like Seven gets away with being dark because it is two hours long. You can just about take it for two. You couldn't take seven for twenty there's, there's, hours. There's hum- <laughs> there's there's humor. You know, there's humor in in that movie. It's it's not. You know, even even in The Last of Us and The Walking Dead and other games that are, you know have yeah. heavy subject matters, they it. have they have moments of humour in. But um, I, would, I would actually think um, because essentially, what there's four four people that are killed in this game, and I think it's clever to keep um, the killings away from the combat. So the combat is done in the outer world, and I mean you're killing you know, weird zombie type people, and you know mm. that that feels very much like well we need shooting in a game. So yeah, and but totally. it, it's kept well away from the narrative of the story itself. So when people die, and you feel like actually as a detective, I don't want to. Yeah, die. as a detective, I feel like you know. He, he could have solved the case three or four steps before he finally does, and that he's he's you know, York's actually almost responsible for the girl's death throughout this, even though yeah. you know, he's not the one that pulled the trigger. But it's there's enough of a barrier Swing there out. to actually make those those deaths impactful because it's it's kept away from kind of the, the the normal combat of the game, which is you know it feels almost like in a different realm. Speaking about the combat, I think it would have been interesting to see York running about shooting things from the perspective of someone who can't see them. Just see them running down a hospital corridor, just firing wildly at the walls. <laughs> see, I, I see, I think one of the things why I actually enjoy the combat more than probably the rest of you guys is because I ended up with... No, but I, I ended up with ridiculous weapons. So, I mean, I, I went through with strimmers. Um, so I'd go around strimming people. <laughs> Sounds like Dead Rising yeah, at that and point. It, and it's hilarious. A light sword. So basically a lightsaber. Um, hacking people. No more heroes. Yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Um, what? I mean, all, all that I got was like the infinite machine gun. So. RPG. Man, you should fire an RPG down that corridor and see them all blow up. It's see, fantastic. I can only—I quite like the fact that I only pretty much stuck to fairly basic weapons because I think all that stuff would have undermined the relationship I did have with the game, which was that this was basically still an FBI agent, not some kind of super soldier. In fact, I would actually have been interested in. Eddie was talking about bypassing the combat. I would be interested in playing a version of Deadly Premonition that was like that was like Silent Hill Shattered Memories, where it was all about escaping and and you know having a torch and and you know shi- shining a light and finding places to hide and that kind of thing. It might have actually been scary then instead of the. You know the the shuffling. The is, yeah, they could have got rid of all those cartels, and if the only combat in the game was trying to escape from the raincoat killer, it could have worked. Could have worked very well. 
I would say one of the worst moments actually inside the combat arenas is where you need to run away from the, the raincoat killer, basically moving the, the stick left and right. Um, and then you come against uh, basically crates that need to be pushed. So you're holding down the push button while he's running after you. And then you left them right again. And then you come to another crate and push it while you're watching this. And it's what? It's, this I is terrible. I didn't say that the way they put in the raincoat killer sequences were any good. It just says that the, if that was the only... He was the only enemy in the game and they had a completely different system about it. Nemesis-like, maybe, yeah. you know, uh, Resident Evil 3-like. Um, but yeah, actually, as I say, his appearances, maybe it's partly the use of music and stuff, but he was creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and back to his story. Uh, and indeed, you know, we must talk about the sort of the, the conclusion of the game. And you know, we're going to have to assume a lot of the plot has happened. But basically, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a trail. You follow various trails. You end up finding out that George is the current raincoat killer. Um, but he is kind of an agent of the unassuming chubby uh sapling salesman forest forest Kaysen, who how do we how do we go about broaching this it turns out is is essentially some kind of manifestation of some sort of devil type figure the final confrontation takes place he has emily uh, not only does he have emily he's uh it's strongly implied that he's he's uh he's raped her with a tree and is also performing cunnilingus on her now these are the moments in the game that i that still live with me over two years you know two years after having played it uh stumbling across this repulsive uh bloated character um i I can't remember at which point he starts to show his true form but uh you come you come across him as a bad choice of words in the circumstances but he's there he's got he's got saliva and goodness knows what other fluids on his chin he's clutching his plant pot emily's there lying with uh, uh bits of sapling sticking he's, up he looks basically <laughs> like i think is it the purple version of fat bastard from austin powers too with the you know the the real oh, yeah. swell on his neck and it's absolutely disgusting to look at yeah i remember that his tongue was particularly disgusting oh that's yeah. right and he's yes he's got a classic uh a devil tongue type thing going on which he's clearly been using on emily in the, in the most uh intimate way um it's it's fucking horrific that whole scene is just really is gobsmacking like proper jaw-dropping stuff um and it's almost like obviously if people have listened this far and they haven't played the game before (laughs) we told you (laughs) um but it was certainly as as horrible as that all sounds and there's there's kind of more reveals to come and stuff but that that was a, a real moment in gaming where i was actually like Wow, I was not expecting that. Not not that I didn't think that there was something up with Kaysen, um, but the the particular way in which it was revealed was just remarkably vile. And certainly because okay. it was an enemy, en- Emily, Emily. You, I, I was really fond of, and you really yeah. feel like um, you know York and Emily are going to get together at the yeah. end of the game and then be you know kind of sweet and nice. And essentially, she has a tree that grows out of her stomach, which she pulls out, thus <laughs> ripping it's the her way entire she life from her. Of, it's, it's the way she sort of reveals, isn't it? That that when she stands up and it's in her stomach, and it's just the way Kason says to you, and he said, "I told you, I had to grow them in a very specific way." And it's just it's so cold and horrible and disgusting. A real sort of dark turn, yeah. Especially because Emily, by by that point, by the time you hit the, what, about the 18th hour of the game, you're really fond of Emily because she's a very good character in the game and you you realise that, obviously, outside of the rest of the police force and something, she's to be trusted and the only person that maybe you do trust in the whole town, you know, yeah. explicitly. And, and then you realise that 
there's there's no turning back here. She can't survive. Oof, horrible. Yeah. Um, so talking about some of those um, sort of the game foreshadowing this uh, FK in the coffee. Um, the very first time that um, York, uh, what's his name, the guy out of um, the guy out of Twin Peaks, like uh, loves his coffee. Karma Clacklin character. I've forgotten his name. Agent Cooper. Agent Cooper. That's it. Um, the first time he he looks into his uh, coffee, like uh, reading tea leaves. Um, FK, um, and also um, doesn't one of doesn't the sheriff's license plate pretty much give him he's away? He's the one. Yeah, he's the one. Yeah. <laughs> he's also got um, the rain, basically the raincoat and killer's raincoat in his closet. If you look in there, um, <laughs> that's the thing. What? I mean, that, this game has a lot of foreshadowing, just pretty much blatant clues. Yeah, totally. if you if you knew about them beforehand, you know, like in the very first room, there is a little map showing you all the places that Forrest Kaysen's been. And he mm-hmm. tells you where he's been later on, you know, and it matches up exactly with all these other models. The red trees basically uh, have seeds in there, which are how he has his power. Um, it's quite convoluted, but it, they're interesting. But the red the red trees can basically be found at the police station and in um, George's George Woodsman's house in his backyard. If you look in there, so like they're directly there. Um, it's one of the, one of the things I hinted towards earlier is the. Although the game doesn't look fantastic, there's actually a living world there. So characters get up in the morning and do their routines, go to work, and you can actually follow them around the map and see what they're doing. Yes. Um, on rainy nights at a certain time, you can actually see uh, George Woodman walk around the woods, <laughs> just randomly walking around the woods at the middle of the night. Yeah, that doesn't it's fantastic. freak you out, right? Yeah. <laughs> the amount of times I would just drive down the street and you'd... Like, there was a time I was driving by, and he was in the milk barn doing his shopping. This is the charge, yeah. and he's really, really sort of weird, and you're like, well, that kind of makes sense. But there's, yeah. there's tons there's there's tons of hints that the whole game... I mean, this, this is what I like about it as well, is that actually the raincoat, raincoat killer isn't really... The, the most interesting part about this game mm. you think it is for you know if you're playing just through the story you think it really is for about 16 hours and then the whole end stuff just comes crashing around you realise that actually he's just a vessel for somebody to kill the townsfolk but really he's just a pawn and you know Forrest Kaysen is the one that's pulling all the strings and everybody else well George himself is a sex fiend and all the girls have basically slept with him that he's killed which is kind of weird as well that's small town life for you mm-hmm backwards america um i'm sure it's the same over here uh then um then uh, you know he confronts Kaysen and uh well a boss fight ensues not to put too fine a point on it which is also remarkable um in just the way that the game suddenly sort of goes more you know classic video game you've got this giant monster that crawls around the walls turns into a big inflatable balloon type stain puffer yeah, then eventually becomes this giant screen filling, uh, and you have to. Was he have to go in his pocket or something? And uh, he's holding the Forest Case and doll in his hand, That's which right. you're having to shoot, and then he hides from you as his health goes down and sticks in his pocket. Take more health, then you have to climb up, up to his head, and he goes, "What are you doing up here?" And you look down and you shoot the doll in his pocket and. Yep, and then there's a QT sequence that lasts longer than the rest of the game combined. Oh, that's terrible. I don't know. It, the, the game took a real backward step there, where <laughs> all the time you're sort of hiding, running away from the raincoat killer, and you're left and right on the joystick, and you're like, "This couldn't get any worse." It can because you got to do it for about three or four minutes and solid. The great thing about that is that you're running down the tower in circles, run, 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 avoiding his hits, and then when you fight the boss at the end, you're actually on top of the tower. 
Yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why? How did this happen? I did think, though, like the actual, the, the graphic of the Cason monster running down that tower is some of the best graphics in the game. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in fact, if, you know, to cut a long story, a very long story short, um, it, it is effectively, you are, you are battling some sort of devil, maybe not the traditional, you know, gods, God versus the devil, Christian type devil, but it's some sort of horrific manifestation of evil. Um, you take him down because you can, um, but the story doesn't sort of end there, does it? Um, so it turns out that Zach's uh, Zach's traumas kind of stem back to Kaysen as well from his childhood. That's why he's got a scar. Yeah, Kaysen actually uh, did the same thing to his mother. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I think doesn't doesn't for the longest time York claim that it was uh, his father that killed his mother. I think in the story that he tells Emily, and when he remember in seeing Kaysen and the way it unfolds, he actually sort of sees it for what it was, and that he grew the plant inside his mother, and his father mm. couldn't shoot her. He, yeah, he wasn't brave her. enough. Yeah. yeah, so she sort mm. of rotted away before his eyes, and then um, he told York that he must do what needs to be done regardless of the circumstances. Then shoots himself, and Kaysen, then he sees Kaysen around the corner, um, mm. and Kaysen almost mocks him, puts his little doll down. Uh, mm. And I think doesn't he, he hits York with what I assume was a little sapling branch, which mm. scars mm-hmm. him across his eye, um, obviously damaging his eye and leaving him with the scar that he's got now. Uh, which is also at the point that you know uh, Zach and York swap places. Yeah, so he deals with the trauma effectively by sort of disconnecting from from himself, and uh, and indeed uh, the, cl- uh, the pretty much the final scene involves uh, York and uh, the the various murder female murder victims um and thomas i can't remember yeah, and thomas, thomas dressed also in a red dress in, that's right of course of course he's in his red dress yeah um i don't know if woodman did woodman have a, a physical affair with thomas he did yeah he did yeah he has um love g on the back and you know he's sort oh, of yeah, intimate yeah. with him but you suddenly realize that i think the the way he believes the story is that he has to kill four women uh have them eat the seeds eat the seeds himself then kill them uh, and on, uh, kill him on, I think, was it rainy nights? And then he'll become mm-hmm, yeah. immortal. Um, and he has three set up, except that he has Carol and Thomas, um, who are substitutes, because he actually wants Emily to be the final sacrifice for his immortality. Mm. Um, and when he realises that uh, Thomas has been killed by uh, York, uh, he quickly kills Carol as a substitute. Because it was, you know, he originally wanted to do it another way. Um, so Carol and Thomas are very much in on the killings as well as uh, obviously George, who's the wrinkle killer, and Kaysen, who's pulling all the strings. So there's actually, I think, four villains in the game. I I am intrigued though. Like it's it it's a crazy story. Um, it's it's particularly sort of insane the way it all you know intersects and it all ties back to Zach's youth. There's no real explanation for this. There's no real explanation for the reason that although these um, women. Uh, and man are horrifically murdered in the name of this uh, devil figure. Why they then get to become you know, happy, peaceful woodland sprites? Um, it it's the sort of story that you know. Again, it, in in the context of this game, it's as I say, it's remarkable and memorable and things like that. But is it actually a good story? I would I would not necessarily. I think, think no. I I think it is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's always a cop out to say you compare it to many video game stories, but I, I think there's a subtlety. It's very hard. I mean, we're we're struggling now to wrap it all up in you know a, a twenty minute kind of take of what 
ultimately it is. Yeah. But I mean, having just recently played through it, there's hints, there's clues, there's there's tricks where you know you believe one person's one thing and they turn out to be completely other. You get close to the characters. Um, it doesn't flinch um, from doing the nasty to, to certain people. Um, I think it's a, a really quite a clever story. I mean, going into certainly going towards the back end of the game I was, think, I was thinking okay yes this is your local kind of crime mystery solving FBI agent this is making sense we'll, we'll find out who the raincoat killer is and I just think that the last quarter of the game completely throws you know a, a lot of what I my preconceptions of what I was playing out of the window and I think that's a real clever trick of the hand to actually realise wow actually the raincoat killer is just a small part of this ever-growing craziness of what's here and all these things and, and for me the, the the bait and switch of who uh, York was versus Sack was that was the moment I went I wow okay I really did not see that at all mm. um, and you know it made me stop think about it come back um, kind of reassess different things I've done in the game and conversations that I've had and, and replay sections and yeah, there's I mean I think in many respects it's a real brave story and not many games um, really I, I think could have pulled it off in the way that it does if you bought a novel with this story in <sighs> yeah but I mean I've seen so many films which have you could say the same thing I mean yes I mean for me I don't ever compare it to a movie or a book um, I think the the best comparison is if I think the story in a game is good could I watch a TV series based around that same storyline you know, like we take something like Red Dead Redemption, where I liked it. Could I watch that over an extended TV series? Yeah. Could I mm. could I watch something like Deadly Premonition over a you know a, a, a in depth HBO sort of TV series? Absolutely, I would mm. love a TV series built well, around what, this. What I will say actually to, to back that up is you know this is based on Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks ends pretty strange if I remember rightly and it doesn't all make sense ends with a movie (laughs) yeah a lot a lot of people talk about this this feels very David Lynch-esque and yeah once again kinda but you're left a lot of times with David Lynch going what the hell is going in going on and I think this actually it it mixes all those elements together and actually delivers a better story than it um, than a lot of those films because ultimately you do get a uh, a revolution Resolution to mm. the story and uh, the story arc, and it's a really interesting one where quite often, you know, things can be kind of abstract and, and crazy and insane, and they just leave it as that and let you try to work it out yourself, and, and that doesn't always work. And I think it, it takes a deft hand to produce a story this crazy, this insane, and actually wrap it up to make the player go, that that was pretty good. I mean, Eddie, I have would... heard in the past that uh, Deadly Premonition is Twin Peaks without a shit ending. <laughs> Eddie, would you say this is one of gaming's great stories or a, or a, the, a pot boiler and the ramblings of a madman? Or somewhere Both. in between? <laughs> Both. Both is a good answer. I would definitely say that it's, that it's an excellent story because it does the things to me as I'm uh, experiencing the story that I want a good story to do. You know, I'm, I'm engaged throughout. I'm involved in the mystery. I'm, I'm enamored by the characters. You know, I care about the relationships between the main character and the other characters in the town. And and it all comes together in a really screwed up sort of shocking and interesting psychologically screwed up. And I just I don't know. I I think it's really good. Mm. I would like. Uh, I would I would definitely watch it as a TV series for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. fair comment indeed. I, again, I just wonder, and I know I keep coming back to this, but it is something that interests me. I feel like. Uh, again, certain certain games 
perhaps higher profile ones perhaps ones that are critically more lavished with praise um any kind of uh if they show that they're you know strongly influenced by other things if they're derivative stuff like that uh it's often used as a stick to beat them very hard with over and over again whereas you know this is clearly you know hugely derivative of any number of things and yet you know people are happy to say it's a great story excellent yarn you know all that sort of thing and and, and i'm i'm conflicted by that not not in my opinion of the game but in how other people view things it confuses me well in terms of story you know like maybe maybe the environment the the a lot of things about it draw from a lot of places but the story itself is original right you know the the narrative I suppose the specifics of it are, but the overarching, I mean, you know, it always comes back to the thing that there are only, you know, a handful of actual plots, a handful of actual stories, and it has to be the details that are different. And in fact, you know, in this case, yeah, the the, the specifics about the tree and the tree salesman and the fact that, you know, he is effectively some kind of devil and he uses trees and, you know, the the minutiae about the abuse and and the the military experiments and and all that that all those all those little bits kind of come off it but i think again i do just feel like not that i would necessarily give it a bad review if it was a if it was a book or something but i feel like it would be considered kind of just incoherent derivative rubbish were it not a video game like a david lynch film then uh, yeah. i think i think even, <laughs> yeah, I think even games get a, a rough hand for 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 that, I mean, look at what, say, something like the Resident Evil series has done. It hasn't had mm. an interesting story since the mm. second one. You know, it was everything else has sort of been really sort of predictable and forwards. And and you know, Silent Hill's always been much more psychological, but mm. arguably that hasn't you know delivered a great story since what, the third one. Um, although I, I, I was quite fond of Downpour, but not for the story. And then mm-hmm. in something like this. It feels like I haven't played this. It doesn't go on the tropes of oh, I'm an all-action sort of super soldier, take everyone on, or you know, mm. I'm, I'm don't feel like I'm doing it for my family, sort of you know story. I haven't come hunting, you know, for for a missing member of my family. I've come as a detective. I am a detective, and I'm going to do what a detective does, and you do. Although to be fair, at the start of the great. game, he isn't actually there on official business. He's just doing it for his own uh, goals. No, I'm right? sure he says I've been. To, yeah, he gets paid his wage, and he said, "Oh, uh, thanks to these, I'm being sent for another day in the boondock." Yeah, but it's not an official investigation. He's just there checking it out. Hmm. That's why, uh, as soon as he finds the seeds, he takes over from the, the local sheriff's department. Oh yeah. Ah, uh, yes, mm. yeah. It's it's on a uh, sort of like a. He's heard a hint that there's, that it could be involved around these red seeds, yeah, and then then he's gone there. But it, it's not like he's going there because you know, like I'm saying, the missing family, which is obviously something that Silent Hills always got gone on, is that you've gone for someone missing, or like I say, you know, Resident Evil has always been the action, or Alan Wake was. We don't really know. You just went to write a book and had a shit character about it. But this didn't use any of those sort of tropes in in sort of the the horror murder mystery sort of. Thing and it and it wrapped up a whole story and I think the reason I enjoyed it all as a story is because it was so aware of what it was giving you and you're playing and you're like well I can see that he's going to be the villain and you know you you think it's cut you you sort of see this coming and you're like this isn't very clever and the game's like ha we knew you'd see that one coming but did you see this coming because the clues were there 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 and there you didn't did you you know then it felt like it was sort of in on this really clever joke that 
it sold just enough to sort of spin you one way and then showed you another hand in it. I thought that was really quite clever because the amount of games I've played that have just oversold the ending a mile off and, and how it's all going to happen and the conclusion, at, at, at least, you know, 9 out of 10. And, and this by far didn't do that for me. We must uh, get on to our conclusion. I'm going to have to uh, cut some of the correspondence down, but um, to point listeners in the direction of our forum, canerince.com slash forum, for some excellent discourse on the game, and hopefully that will continue after the podcast, and hopefully some more people will catch up with Deadly Premonition um, you know, off the back of this, even though we spoiled it. I know. Yeah, that's a real hard one for me, actually, because I, I really feel, you know, quite often you could say, well, you know, how, how much does the storyline... Um, really affect a game you know mm. if you just come in and you know, quite often I've listened to like many of the podcasts we've done what I've not been, been on and it's inspired me to go back and play the yeah. games or try a game for the first time but I really feel um, that many of the, the story elements here uh, if you if you were choreographed of what they were there really would be an impact of the game although I suppose you could perhaps you, you could view it from well now I understand what the story is I can I can look out for all these extra bits that you know I wouldn't have seen through yeah, the first and time. also there, there, there are studies which suggest that actually spoilers don't spoil in fact they just they only enhance anticipation incite, excitement so I know people like to avoid them and, and as I say you know we certainly give out the warnings for, yeah. for good reason but actually it might be that you know I think by the time you're kind of in it if it's good enough, the fact that you know what's coming shouldn't spoil it. You know, if if there's enough, if there's enough of substance going on, and you know, maybe I mean, you know, I suppose there's an argument which says if just giving away the ending as we have done to Deadly Premonition ruins the whole game, then maybe it's not a very good video game. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do think that the the one the one difference here yeah. is the fact that it is a murder mystery. You know, like actually figuring out the killer is a large part of the, the anticipation. Mm. True. Yes. Well, you know, I'm sure some people uh, will listen all the way through to this, you know, this point in the podcast without having played the game, and, and it'd be interesting. We'd we'd like to hear from you on the forum if if you've then been inspired to play the game um, or watch it on YouTube. Anyway, I just want to talk a little about the director's cut. Um, obviously, uh, I, I've played uh, some of the director's cut, mostly the 360 version, um, and Eddie also has played a fair chunk of both but Chopper our correspondent says I'm not usually one to get emotional about games but let me get this out of the way the director's cut is an absolute disgrace the inclusion of a framing story that makes no sense telling a story of of serial murder to a young child robs the story of its momentum and provides saccharine and wholly unnecessary wrap-up it was a serious misstep the fact that they couldn't release anything even remotely competent as to the audio and visual requirements was unforgivable words and phrases missing in the middle of sentences in the audio subtitles written by someone with a poor command of english where instead of were loose instead of lose one of the characters looking for a pedant pendant add the technical issues which caused the game to slow down and the refusal to fix any of the technical issues that exist in the original and it was a real mess See, that's quite interesting to me because I remember when I was playing the game, I was actually surprised at, at how good some of the subtitles were in terms of getting like there, there, and there correct uh, consistently. And I think it shouldn't be something you're impressed by. I, it should be yeah, like minimum oh, standard. Yeah, I, but there are a serious number of games that still get it wrong, and true, many true. of them much higher budget than this. And I think it, it it's interesting reading that because I remember the bit where he talks about. Um, he's talking to himself and he's talking about how he's going to go and speak in front of the at, at the community centre. And I think he says, we'll be in big fun. <laughs> we'll be in big fun, Zach, right? And it, it was like, well, that, that's not right. 
but kind of funny, right? But, but that kind of that that stood <laughs> out because the up to that point, I before that, I was always thinking, well, that's really quite good, you know. And it's always something I've looked out for, um, like just you know naturally, due to the way I've always written and had it drilled into me to get the, the you know loose and loose and stuff right from from childhood. So um, for that to be the director's cut is kind of weird. Obviously, uh, the people that play both here you know, could speak more to this, but I mean, having somebody who's just come straight to the director's cut and, and not played the original, um, I I think the, the framing makes some sense, but actually when I was playing it, it I, I knew I knew that was some of the extra stuff they added in there. It doesn't. I don't really think it distracts from the game. I just think you know they tried to frame it. It doesn't really make any sense anyway. <laughs> reading to a child this horrific, this horrific story. Mm. Um, I mean, it turns out that that person reading it is is uh, Zach. Yeah, um, well, quite, and clearly it's. I mean, it's not. It's not very well hidden, is it? Um, and he repeatedly uh, calls his own granddaughter by the incorrect name of Emily. Is that? Yeah, that is tr- true. Yeah, correct. Um, there's some there's some interesting stuff at the right at the back end of the game, which isn't in the, in the. Um, the original release where they kind of hint at a sequel a, a bit more mm, directly. Um, he, um, Zach meets York's, York again uh, in this, uh, you have to go through the door for the, uh, the title screen menu. Um, and in there that they, they talk about, there's this new case that's just open up and you have to answer whether you want to go or not. And I was like, yeah, cool. And you know, they were like, yay, let's do this. So it feels like there will be some sort of sequel to this game. He's well, at least worries hinting quite a lot, but I mean, as as from a uh, once again the the technical standpoint of view. I mean, I I haven't played the original. I tried to. Um, I actually brought a copy on eBay that never turned up. So that was great. That that mm. feels like this is just part of this big adventure. It makes sense for this game that just wouldn't turn up. Um, and I wish I had the frame of that. But as you said, Leon, I mean, there's if you ran through doors, you would smash through the door and then just go through the bottom of the floor into the the into the world. So I stopped doing that quite often. Uh, I had. You know, not too many crashes, but I had weird things where a couple of times I got stuck in the environment. And yeah. um, having looked at side by side comparisons, I mean, this one does add visual fidelity, but um, yeah, not a great deal. In, in fact, if you look at like the water, they take away a load of the visual effects that were in the 360 or well, in the, the original version, obviously, to make it run smoother. But at, weirdly, at, at one of the downsides is the frame rate apparently is even worse. Oh yeah, um, and yeah. I can I can attest to this because the frame rate is pretty damn terrible. Sometimes when you pick up an object, the frame rate on the object you've just picked just, up is, yeah. like, is like countable frames. Takes, takes two or three seconds to even start animating the frames, and then it's about madness. twenty seconds to finish spinning. The, it. And um, the music on the title screen's glitchy. Yeah, I mean it. To to say a game's broken Director's is when cut. when you go when you when you load up your save the actual music starts <laughs> and it feels like it's just this weird part of the experience but every time you load a save up you panic that something is going to break because it's it's obviously chugging so I mean it, it brings up like if you're going to do a director's cut really you you should be doing a lot more than just you know making some of the assets look a little bit better and adding a, a, a framing story that wasn't really required to to leave so many bugs in there i think you know i i, I don't I, I i would say you probably should play the director's cut now because it's probably got less issues than the original release oh, i don't know it's a I shame when you hear all these negatives about the director's cut and it's the only option in north america and europe if you're a playstation 3 owner to play it Mm, you know yeah. that that kind of sucks. I don't know if I would if I would jump on board wholeheartedly with a lot of the director's cut complaints because I mean mm-hmm. I'm like sort of half and half. You know the the graphics were improved. The the frame rate 
did, you know, decrease in some ways. Yeah. But they improved the combat. They changed the combat mechanics to be better and more. They manageable. added more camera control, didn't they? I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I think the frame the the story was didn't need to be there, and it was more jarring than anything. So I agree with that. But you know, I, I feel like there's like a give and take, which yeah, there shouldn't be <laughs> with the director's cut. Yeah, it should just like, be the should, ultimate. They should edition. only improve. Yeah. yeah. But but you know there were some improvements. Yeah, I, I would agree with with Eddie. The 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 frame rate hit is an is annoying, but the game is mechanically so poor anyway that it doesn't really make things worse. Whereas the improved texture fidelity probably makes more of an improvement than the than the frame rate takes away um but it's still not a great looking game you shouldn't so be talking about that stuff really should you let's well, be honest here though i mean this is the ps3 version that has just been recently greenlit for the pc so anyone that tells us time's a charm should... right yeah no it's probably going to be awful but at the same time it should be better <laughs> It should haven't. It shouldn't have frame rate problems. So that's, why, why I, is the change with the with the shooting mechanic then? Because that, that's news to me. I didn't know that they changed it. It's just the controls and um, lock on easy, easy. I lock think. on. So it doesn't yeah. lock straight onto the crutch now. <laughs> well, and the game, I, I'm pretty sure as well. The game defaults on easy. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah, so yeah. you don't even have an option. Yeah, I mean, the, the 360 version had two difficulty levels to start with, and you could unlock a third by completing the game. I think I have no idea what happens if you complete the director's cut, whether that unlocks selectable difficulty or whatever. No, it doesn't. It, no. no. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the PC version is is imminent. Very, you know, strange sort of uh, case for a green light for a game that's basically already been out. A main, you know, on on consoles and and by all accounts, I'm sure it's. Or just cutting the publisher. Profitable in the end. Yeah, um, but there you go. Yeah, hopefully it will be... It, I'm certain it will have the wraparound story still attached, which is a shame probably, but um, yeah, if it just eradicates the frame rate issues, then that will be something. I'll be fascinated to see what the PC community do with the game. I mean, if the, if it open enough Mod for time, them to yeah, actually mod course, it, yeah. I, I think mm. there could be some really interesting I think you're still sort of limited with the model quality, though. The models are still really low. Polygon, they can rebuild so. the models. Yeah. <laughs> they can rebuild There, there are some... There are some clever people out there. Um, right, so very briefly, as I say, I've had to cut the lengthy ones because of time, so apologies to our excellent correspondents, but as I say, com slash forum. Um, some brief ones from Simon Cole, who uh, told us about the voice actor thing. Uh, Deadly Premonition is as mechanically flawed as it is utterly compelling and contains more personality than the majority of AAA titles in existence. An amazing video game. Roy42, who deals in absolute and uh, non-subjective discourse, says Deadly Premonition is the best game of the entire generation. I've seen him say that in more than one place. Um, (laughs) I don't think he's prepared to argue about it either. Press Escape to Exit says, I love Deadly Premonition. So many strong, unique images and characters, which is surprising considering how overt the Twin Peaks influence is. And finally, for this section, Sly Reflex says, Deadly Premonition. As a game, it's actually really bad. As an experience, it is unparalleled. Um, yeah, it's a shame we, we haven't heard from... Uh, the, the ones I cut are also generally very positive. Um, you know, I wonder how many people there are out there who, who just gave up on the game. Um, many, I'm sure. Now, uh, assembled panel would you please help me with our three word reviews certainly michael edward says a charming chore simon cole says it's ambitious and compelling frozen treasure says it's fucking amazing 
Scott Munro says, amazing, right, Zach? Daniel Gomes, better on YouTube. Stuart Collins says, twin sheeps, Zach. Nathan Druitt says, ambition overcomes budget. Mark Patterson, excellent. Shake graphics. Steve Haskey says, in the coffee. Justin Brimley, best driving sim. Now that's a troll. That's got to be a troll. (laughs) (laughs) Brad Galloway says, true cult classic. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, cult classic is a kind of glib term, but um, it's hard to think of a better kind of glib term <laughs> yeah. for this game. So, our summaries: uh, Did we enjoy it, uh, and would we recommend it? Starting with Carl Moon. See, this is probably the first time in doing all of Kane and Rince that I'm going to say I really enjoyed the experience of Deadly Premonition. But if you've listened this far, I don't recommend it. <laughs> because the best elements of all of Deadly Premonition are what it delivers to you in to the conclusion of the story with the characters, and we've just sort of covered that. Because in terms of you know excluding the the, the side quests, um, you know we we've discussed the 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 main elements of the stories, the way it concludes with the with the story and and so forth. But the actual game itself is a little raw. It's a little rough around the edges. <laughs> and, Polite. <laughs> and, and we know there are a lot of people that haven't completed it. I have a friend. She used to work in Blockbuster at the time in, in 2010. And she said that she'd never seen a game returned as much so quickly after release as that Deadly Premonition with so much <laughs> abuse. And I think... Yeah. And, I sort of understand it because anyone who's playing it, you know, five years, uh, this is at 2010, five years into this generation and seeing those kind of graphics and that kind of sound, you're going to be left a little disappointed. And, you know, the driving in it we've covered is poor, although I did like the idea that you could indicate and use your windscreen wiper. That was pretty pretty fun. <laughs> Best driving scene. Um, yeah. And, you know, the the... Animations, uh, ropey. The the you, there's so many things that I can understand why people hate this game. I can also understand why so many people love this game, and it's the experience far outweighs the actuality of the gameplay. And if you're willing to forego the the sort of real roughness of the core game to play to experience that story, those characters, and that sort of wrap up then there's nothing like Deadly Premonition. Um, And in a way, that's sort of a good thing because I think, as Leon mentioned earlier, it sort of gets a free pass because it's so different to everything else. If there were more games like this, it probably wouldn't feel so special, but I think that's the whole joy of it. The games, maybe on a bigger budget, aren't willing to take those risks that that Deadly Premonition has, And, and there are a lot of them. You know, it, it's a cheap game. It's it's different. You're going to get it in, in every sense. <laughs> yeah, in every sense, it is a very cheap game. But if you look, you know, sort of, if you sort of read between the lines and look, there is a, a lot to really admire about the bravery taken in crafting such. Like they didn't create a game; they created an experience with Deadly Premonition, and and it's all the better for it. But I must say, I would love that game in the world of you know something like Alan Wake which looks so good and controls so well 
but with these characters and and that lead and that story, I think you would have had something truly brilliant, both to play and experience. But I mean, if you really add after an experience to play, you can't really beat Delhi Premonition. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's uh, possibly never been a a greater video gaming example of something that's far greater than the sum of its in some cases pretty abysmal parts um, there's so many things it looks blocky there's illogic, just illogicalities all over the place the way the way that um, even you know specific areas that York's moving through are laid out just like fences and barrels in the most absurd places there's no there's no attempt at realism in, in those sort of areas um Menus are slow and clunky. There are, you know, you need to do far too many button presses to get in and out of um, item menus and things like that. Um, inappropriate noises when you shoot people. Um, ka-ching, ka-ching, nice. You know, all this kind of stuff. Just things you really don't want in a creepy survival horror video. Did you game. play the darts? The darts are great. Oh, there's always a great darts <laughs> mini game in, in every classic. Um, yeah, uh, some, as I say, some some excellent monologues, but some really terrible dialogues. Um, featuring and a real mixed bag of, of voice acting, some some bizarrely wooden exchanges, but the the whole thing is really and I, and I understand this is true of Twin Peaks as well. It's like a sort of macabre soap opera, um, in the you know the, the, it's got cheap sets and and the acting's not always up there, but the writers have to work so hard to keep your attention because the production values are so low um, that they'll do anything <laughs> to, to to keep you hooked, and um and certainly like. As much as there are, you know, far too many lengthy combat sequences with really boring enemies and some rubbish QTs and stuff like that, by the time you got, by the time you've sort of battled through to the latter stages of the game, you can't put it down, and you have to see what happens next. And when you do see what happens next, uh, as I say, literally a jaw slackening moment will greet you, um, more than one, but particularly one towards the end of the game. Um, and as I say, it's memorable, and, and a lot of video games aren't. So. Uh, I could, you know, for me, I could never just, you know, boldly state it's like the greatest game of the generation or something like that. Um, it's got far too many problems, um, but it is something that's well worth experiencing. Tony? It's really weird. I Everybody gets caught up on the graphics of Deadly Premonition, and I think they do play a, a major part of some of its charm for me. But, you know, I, I recently played through Crisis 3, and that game, I tell you what, that looked incredible. And it, you know, its its controls were spot on. It was one of the most boring experiences I've had in my entire life going through that. <laughs> um, so it's vice versa. Yes, does Deadly Premonition have issues with its, its both its gameplay and the way it looks? Sure. But if you can get over the fact that really you're just playing a PlayStation 2 game on a current generation console, like, I played old games all the time like if this was on the playstation 2 would we be as hard on the way that it looks or would we just go well that was for the time and i think we just get caught up too much on saying well you know this is the major thing that's the the problem with this game because what we really should be focusing on this has a absolutely charming story fantastic i mean it's there's points of the game where i was actually laughing out loud not just chuckling i was laughing out loud um i wasn't allowed to play for the story segments without my wife being in the room because she got involved in what was going on so I, that's probably why i did so much side stuff because i like the you know i liked actually just being in greenvale um and i think if you'd want to play it as a um as some people did I I remember playing Red Dead Redemption and and people were like oh I love going around and shooting all the animals and going through my collection and ticking off every box 
I hated that in Red Dead Redemption. Really? It felt yeah, it just I found it utterly boring. And mm. it it you know, it's stuff I normally like, but in uh Deadly Promotion I I was attached to the town and the townsfolk, so I felt like ticking off every box was worth every single forty two hours that I spent within that environment and I just found the gameplay eventually I became yeah, you know what, it's just what it is and and I got through it. So I think it's it's unique. I think cult classic is a word that I think perfectly uh, encapsulates what this game is. Um, is it for everyone? Certainly not. I can't, you know, could I, <laughs> could Cho Blogs off the street come in and appreciate everything that's done? Probably not. But for me, um, I've been playing through a lot of games recently, not burnt out on gaming or anything like that, because that has too dramatic of an impact, but just feeling like, you know, end of a console generation, I've kind of seen everything that game developers are doing over and over again. And along comes Deadly Premonition, and it's just, yeah, it's it's just got so much charm and it's unusual and it doesn't conform to the 50 AAA standards that every game seems to have nowadays. And for me, it was kind of more of a, a charming, funny experience sticking it in my PlayStation 3, which is capable of so much more, yet playing such an, an odd, uh, quirky-looking game. And the story itself, I think, is actually one of the better stories been told in any video games. Um and I'm interested to see what Swery goes on to. Um, we had this big Twitter conversation a, a few weeks back about um, Suda 51, how, you know, comparing those two games, you know, Swery to Suda 51. Mm. Never been a fan of Suda 51 stuff. I've always found it at arm's length, quite often childish. There's nothing like it. I mean, they're just both Japanese. It's kind of annoying. They're both auteurs and they're both Japanese, and it's kind of annoying that people feel the need to yeah. compare them because would they do that with two random American maybe directors. not but I, I feel like there's a there's a heart and soul to this yeah maybe but there's a heart and soul to um deadly premonition which is lacking in, in a lot of bigger mainstream titles that feel like they've been run through committee meetings so you know i i truly fell in love with deadly premonition um and hopefully you know people will give it a chance and just get over the fact that it looks like a an older generation game <laughs> you can say that it looks like ours which is yeah also, fair enough. It looks poor even for a PlayStation 2 game, in fairness. I mean, especially when you look at some of the HD things that have come over to this generation, like Metal Gear Solid. It's, yeah, you know, it looks like a, maybe a, looks like a low-budget PS2. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's stop beating on its graphics and let's hear from Darren. Yeah, basically you could just record uh, Tune the Segment again and play it over here, and that would be I'll, pretty much as I feel about it. It wouldn't sound the same, I love you, man. No, no way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, like, would I recommend this game to other people? Probably not, unless I know that they're able to get through all the, you know, all the shit that's in the way. Because this game is a beautiful gold diamond, just covered in some absolute muck that you've got to dig through to get to it. A lot of people just wouldn't be interested in doing that, you know? They want the big AAA experience. They want everything to be just kind of like shoveled in their throats at a gentle pace. And, you know, it tastes okay, but it's unfulfilling in that case, you know? Deadly Premonition is the exact opposite. You've got to chew to get through this thing. And you feel get satisfied at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to break into it, and there's a lot of gooey goodness inside, even though it's a diamond ring and it's probably going to... Uh, yeah, this uh, analogy is it's getting great. more and more That's tortured, great. dude. It's perfect for this game. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> It is that kind of game, you know. It's it's it isn't even Marmite. It's just a game that. Hang on, no, it's Marmite. Is it a jewel or is it food? It's everything. It's <laughs> you can eat you can eat jewels, man. You know they just don't have much nutritional content. No, that's true. Minerals, though. 
You know, I love Francis York Morgan as a character, I love the way he interacted with the townsfolk, and I hated the controls and I hated the combat. It is the very definition of jumping into a really cold... You know, like the sea or a cold swim. <laughs> Another <pool>. metaphor. <laughs> Come on, dude. <laughs> it's just that kind of game, you know? Like, the thing is, it's, it's kind of off-putting at first, but if, you, if you're actually inhabited in that pool for any length of time, your body becomes numb to it and you can appreciate everything that's in there. I like your metaphors. <laughs> My metaphors. <laughs> you got any more? I've got a few, but I'll uh, cut them out. You want to save them for another game? It's like a warm spring day. It, you know? <laughs> it's crisp as a cool spring morning. Oh, yeah, it's quite. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But no, like, I think that everyone's um, kind of coming in the same path, you know. There is definitely yeah. value in this game. You've got to get to it. Um, you can't really just shoot after other people that aren't willing to put up with the indigenous crises of the game. And, you know, if. You showed this to someone that's whose main like uh, avenue of gaming is stuff like the new Tomb Raider and Uncharted. Chances are they would be turned off very quickly, especially if they don't have that grounding in older titles, so that they can understand that you can have a good game that looks and basically mechanically is just comprised of pure shit. And if if you get through that, there is a lot to like about this game. There's a lot that I liked about the game, and there's a lot that I would still like to go back and play in the game. You know, as I said, I missed out most of the side quests. Um, and there's just all those little touches, you know, like, you've got the, the license plate, which kind of give you clues as to the, either the main storyline or the personality of the people that drive those cars. You can look inside Emily's house when she's out and notice that the kitchen's all burned. It's just all these little details that kind of comprise this, this really interesting whole, you know? Everybody in every game, it's more than just a sum of its parts. Um, sometimes it com- turns out badly, sometimes it doesn't have a soul. This is the exact opposite. It's got a lot of really knobbly bits that just form this perfect body. <laughs> yes. I would say as well, if if you know, this is really cheap, if you pick it up, if you play the first, probably the first two hours, you'll know if this game is right for you. Because the first moment you hear um, one of the... the uh, I don't know if they're zombies, not quite, but the town folk go, I don't want to die. <laughs> and you listen to that, you are about to hear that another... Well, depending on how many people you kill. 900 times. uh, Yeah, for my case, I heard that 900 (laughs) plus times. Uh, And it's ridiculous. And, like, that has no place in modern gaming. Yet, every time, it kind of, something in me was, (laughs) that's ridiculous. That's funny. Um, You know, time and time again. Yeah, and Darren, speaking about the details, I did want to get a lot more into the many, many details, and there are a lot. Um, the thing is, I mean, cool stuff in there. there's way too much for just one podcast to go through, you know? Yeah. I highly recommend I that you just go online and look up Easter eggs, look at secrets or hidden meanings. There are shitloads of theories. Just all the stuff that you could have missed in the game. I looked at them after I had finished it, and mm-hmm. it, it's mind blowing, you know? Like, how many games have the guts to essentially spoil the entire game if you're being really kind of thorough about your environments? You know, yeah. observant. Yeah. Like the very first, um, as a premonition in the game, a deadly premonition, you might say, which mm-hmm. was all the major events that happened throughout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right yeah that's start, right. But you have yeah. no context for them, so exactly. you, time you get there, you've completely forgotten it. If you reload the game, you're like, Jesus Christ, that was the end. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, he's been very patient. Our special guest debutant panelist, Eddie Inzotto. All right. Um, so it, I think it's pretty clear that I do like the game. Um, and I I would recommend it even if you've played because um, you know even having listened to everything we said and and kind of knowing what how the story ends I think it's very important to experience all of the interaction between these characters because that's the 
the brightest shining point about the game to me. Um, and that that really can't come through unless you, you do see it for yourself. Yeah, I always think watching stuff on YouTube is you lose a certain something context of what's actually in the game itself. Yeah, in a way. Um, but definitely it's hard to to recommend, you know, like to blanket recommend it to everyone who could possibly be listening. Uh, I think if you are interested in writing in video games, um, and if you if you care about the use of video games as an art form, and you know the different ways that that stories can be presented using this medium, you should not you know go without playing this game. You you kind of have to experience this, um, and and because it is so strongly driven by its characters and by its plot and by the the little idiosyncrasies and you know all the every every little nuance of the gameplay in the world the the technical deficiencies sort of fall by the wayside and you know at at this point months and months later years later even um it's not the technical presentation that i remember you know it's it's the story it's the characters it's the ending it's you know it's it's the whole arc of the game it's mm. not it's not you know was this texture good or bad I mean, we bring it up now because you know we're we're fully discussing the game down to every little aspect. But you know, at the end of the day, what what matters is the overall experience from beginning to end, yeah. um, and that that comes down to you know the plot, not and and you know the plot, the characters, all the stuff, and not you know did I did I shoot the guy and did he fall? You know, the 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 combat's not going to matter. Um, none of that's really going to matter. It's going to come down to that overall feeling you have and, and the way that you remember it. And, and it's for me, it was absolutely positive. Um, that, the more time that goes by, the the less readily I will be able to recall the bad parts about the game. Mm. You know, and yeah. I think that's a sign of something that's good, and and that was a positive experience for me. It's interesting you're saying that because, I mean, even though the game does look shitty, you know, like when I look back on it and think about Deadly Premonish as a whole, the graphics don't even enter the equation. One last thing though, Eddie. <laughs> Would you say that this game is like an ice cream sundae? A delicious <laughs> one that is sprinkled in grit? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Excellent. Uh- I don't know, we talked about this, we had this uh, analogy before, sorry about this Sean, by the way, the, the length, the number of audio feeds and everything um, uh, the the idea that, you know a, a thin layer of shit on a, in an otherwise delicious sandwich is a, <laughs> still a sandwich you're not going to want to eat so I, I'm not sure the food, the whole food analogy thing quite works um, yeah, yeah it, I would eat grunt if I got it's, to eat a, it's uh, like a turkey sandwich with strawberry jam and corn yeah, huh? yeah like you said to conclude then just a few issues to go in volume 2 of Kane and Rince uh, next up we have Starwing or Star Fox and Lilac Wars aka Star Fox 64 Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Chaos Theory follows that then Fahrenheit or Indigo Prophecy Super Meat Boy L.A. Noir, Psychonauts and Heavy Rain then we have a little break finally you can support us by subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on iTunes, Have some, as, as some people have done recently, with their kind, lovely words. Thank you very much to everyone. Uh, we have merchandise now to be found at canerince.spreadshirt.co.uk, T-shirts, hoodies, iPad covers, and the like. 
as we said earlier please join the Cana Rinse community and have your say at canarince.com slash forum obviously like everyone we've got Facebooks and Twitters and YouTubes and you can find links to everything at canarince.com so it only remains for me Leon Cox to thank Tony, Darren, Carl and new challenger debut panellist Eddie and Zorto uh, now where can our listeners find you on the internet? Um, well, I am the editor-in-chief of Gamernode.com, uh, so you can find my writing as well as you know all my all my staff there, and we do the Versus Node podcast as well, which uh, basically takes uh, individual topics in gaming and and kind of looks at these things in depth. Actually, coming up toward the end of the year, we're going to be doing a, a pretty long-running series moving into the next generation of consoles about this this previous, you know, the seventh generation, mm-hmm. you know, the best, the worst, just a big recap of everything. And that's going to be, uh, you know, pretty pretty regular till the end of the year. Um, I also just started contributing over at Game Critics. Um, oh. And, you know, just kind of, I'm on Twitter saying words at <laughs> Edian's Auto. And uh, that's about it. Cool, excellent. Shortcut, bookmark those. Subscribe to the podcast. Um, yeah, it's clever stuff, in-depth stuff, uh, the likes of which Cana Rinse listeners will hopefully be somewhat familiar with. Until next time, we'll leave you with some of the excellent music from Deadly Premonition. Uh, until Star Fox, do a barrel roll. <laughs> <laughs>